Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 56 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 56. Pursuit. Impassive as behoves its high breeding, the Dedlock town-house stares at the other houses in the street of dismal grandeur, and gives no outward sign of anything going wrong within. Carriages rattle, doors are battered at, the world exchanges calls, ancient charmers with skeleton throats and peachy cheeks that have a rather ghastly bloom upon them seen by daylight, when indeed these fascinating creatures look like death, and the lady fused together, dazzle the eyes of men. Forth from the frigid mews come easily swinging carriages, guided by short-legged coachmen in flaxen wigs, deep sunk into downy hammercloths, and up behind mount luscious mercuries, bearing sticks of state and wearing cocked hats broadwise, a spectacle for the angels. The Dedlock town-house changes not externally, and hours pass before its exalted dullness is disturbed within. But Volumnia the fair— being subject to the prevalent complaint of boredom, and finding that disorder attacking her spirits with some virulence, ventures at length to repair to the library for change of scene. Her gentle tapping of the door producing no response, she opens it and peeps in. Seeing no one there, takes possession. The sprightly deadlock is reputed, in that grass-grown city of the ancients, Bath, to be stimulated by an urgent curiosity which impels her, on all convenient and inconvenient occasions, to sidle about, with a golden glass at her eye, peering into objects of every description. Certain it is that she avails herself of the present opportunity of hovering over her kinsman's letters and papers like a bird, taking a short peck at this document, and a blink with her head on one side at that document, and hopping about from table to table, with her glass at her eye, in an inquisitive and restless manner. In the course of these researches she stumbles over something, and turning her glass in that direction, sees her kinsman lying on the ground like a felled tree. Volumnia's pet little scream acquires a considerable augmentation of reality from this surprise, and the house is quickly in commotion. Servants tear up and down stairs, bells are violently rung, doctors are sent for, and Lady Dedlock is sought in all directions, but not found. Nobody has seen or heard her since she last rang her bell. Her letter to Sir Leicester is discovered on her table, but it is doubtful yet whether he has not received another missive from another world, requiring to be personally answered, and all the living languages, and all the dead, are as one to him. They lay him down upon his bed, and chafe, and rub, and fan, and put ice to his head, and try every means of restoration. Howbeit the day has ebbed away, and it is night in his room, before his stertorous breathing lulls, or his fixed eyes show any consciousness of the candle that has occasionally passed before them. But when this change begins, it goes on, and by and by he nods, or moves his eyes, or even his hand, in token that he hears and comprehends. He fell down this morning, 
a handsome, stately gentleman, somewhat infirm, but of a fine presence, and with a well-filled face. He lies upon his bed, an aged man, with sunken cheeks, the decrepit shadow of himself. His voice was rich and mellow, and he had so long been thoroughly persuaded of the weight and import to mankind of any word he said, that his words really had come to sound as if there were something in them. But now he can only whisper, and what he whispers sounds like what it is, mere jumble and jargon. His favourite and faithful housekeeper stands at his bedside. It is the first act he notices, and he clearly derives pleasure from it. After vainly trying to make himself understood in speech, he makes signs for a pencil. So inexpressively that they cannot at first understand him. It is his old housekeeper who makes out what he wants, and brings in a slate. After pausing for some time, he slowly scrawls upon it in a hand that is not his, Chesney Wold. No, she tells him, he is in London. He was taken ill in the library this morning. Right thankful she is that she happened to come to London, and is able to attend upon him. It is not an illness of any serious consequence, Sir Leicester. You'll be much better to-morrow, Sir Leicester. All the gentlemen say so. This with the tears coursing down her fair old face. After making a survey of the room, and looking with particular attention all round the bed where the doctors stand, he writes, My lady. My lady went out, Sir Leicester, before you were taken ill, and don't know of your illness yet. He points again, in great agitation, at the two words. They all try to quiet him, but he points again with increased agitation. On their looking at one another, not knowing what to say, he takes the slate once more, and writes, "'My lady, for God's sake, where?' and makes an imploring moan. It is thought better that his old housekeeper should give him Lady Dedlock's letter, the contents of which no one knows or can surmise. She opens it for him, and puts it out for his perusal. Having read it twice by a great effort, he turns it down, so that it shall not be seen, and lies moaning. He passes into a kind of relapse, or into a swoon, and it is an hour before he opens his eyes, reclining on his faithful and attached old servant's arm. The doctors know that he is best with her, and when not actively engaged about him, stand aloof. The slate comes into requisition again, but the word he wants to write he cannot remember. His anxiety, his eagerness, and affliction at this pass are pitiable to behold. It seems as if he must go mad in the necessity he feels for haste, and the inability under which he labours of expressing to do what or to fetch whom. He has written the letter B, and there stopped. Of a sudden, in the height of his misery, he puts Mr. before it. The old housekeeper suggests, Bucket, thank heaven, that's his meaning. Mr. Bucket is found to be downstairs by appointment. Shall he come up? There is no possibility of misconstruing Sir Leicester's burning wish to see him, or the desire he signifies to have the room cleared of every one but the housekeeper. It is speedily done, and Mr. Bucket appears. Of all men upon earth, Sir Leicester seems fallen from his high estate to place his sole trust and reliance upon this man. "'Sir Leicester, Dedlock Baronet, I'm sorry to see you like this. I hope you'll cheer up. 
I'm sure you will, on account of the family credit. Sir Leicester puts her letter in his hands, and looks intently in his face while he reads it. A new intelligence comes into Mr. Bucket's eye, as he reads on. With one hook of his finger, while that eye is still glancing over the words, he indicates, Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, I understand you. Sir Leicester writes upon the slate, Full forgiveness, find— Mr. Bucket stops his hand. Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, I'll find her. But my search after her must be begun out of hand. Not a minute must be lost. With the quickness of thought, he follows Sir Leicester Dedlock's look towards a little box upon a table. "'Bring it here, Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet. Certainly. Open it with one of these here keys. Certainly. The littlest key? To be sure. Take the notes out. So I will. Count em. That's soon done. Twenty and thirty's fifty, and twenty's seventy, and fifty's one-twenty, and forty's one-sixty. Take him for expenses? That I'll do, and render an account, of course. Don't spare money? No, I won't. The velocity and certainty of Mr. Bucket's interpretation on all these heads is little short of miraculous. Mrs. Rouncewell, who holds the light, is giddy with the swiftness of his eyes and hands as he starts up furnished for his journey. "'You're George's mother, old lady. That's about what you are, I believe,' says Mr. Bucket aside, with his hat already on, and buttoning his coat. "'Yes, sir. I am his distressed mother.' "'So I thought, according to what he mentioned to me just now. Well, then, I'll tell you something. You needn't be distressed no more. Your son's all right.' Now, don't you begin a-crying, because what you've got to do is to take care of Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, and you won't do that by crying. As to your son, he's all right, I tell you, and he sends his loving duty and hoping you're the same. He's discharged honourable. That's about what he is. There's no more imputation on his character than there is on yours, and yours is a tidy one, I'll bet a pound. You may trust me— for I took your son. He conducted himself in a game way, too, on that occasion, and he's a fine-made man, and you're a fine-made old lady, and you're a mother and son, the pair of you, as might be showed for models in a caravan. Sir Leicester Dedlock Baronet, what you've trusted to me, I'll go through with. Don't you be afraid of my turning out of my way, right or left, or taking a sleep, or a wash, or a shave, till I have found what I go in search of. Say everything, as is kind, and forgiving on your part. Sir Leicester Dedlock, Baronet, I will. And I wish you better, and these family affairs smoothed over, as Lord many other family affairs equally has been, and equally will be, to the end of time. With this peroration, Mr. Bucket, buttoned up, goes quietly out, looking steadily before him, as if he were already piercing the night in quest of the fugitive. His first step is to take himself to Lady Dedlock's rooms, and look all over them for any trifling indication that may help him. The rooms are in darkness now, and to see Mr. Bucket, with a wax light in his hand, holding it above his head and taking a sharp mental inventory of the many delicate objects so curiously at variance with himself, would be to see a sight, which nobody does see, as he is particular to lock himself in. 
Hey, spicy boudoir, this,' says Mr. Bucket, who feels in a manner furbished up in his French by the blow of the morning. "'Must have cost a sight of money. Rum articles to cut away from these. She must have been hard put to it.' Opening and shutting table drawers, and looking into caskets and jewel-cases, he sees the reflection of himself in various mirrors, and moralises thereon. "'One might suppose.' "'I was a-moving in the fashionable circles, and getting myself up for Almack's,' says Mr. Bucket. "'I begin to think I must be a swell in the guards, without knowing it.' Ever looking about, he has opened a dainty little chest in an inner drawer. His great hand, turning over some gloves which it can scarcely feel, they are so light and soft within it, comes upon a white handkerchief. "'Hmm! Let's have a look at you,' says Mr. Bucket, putting down the light. "'What should you be kept by yourself for? "'What's your motive? "'Are you her ladyship's property, or somebody else's? "'You've got a mark upon you somewheres or another, I suppose.' "'He finds it as he speaks. "'Esther Summerson.' "'Oh,' says Mr. Bucket, pausing with his finger at his ear, "'come, I'll take you.' He completes his observations as quietly and carefully as he has carried them on, leaves everything else precisely as he found it, glides away after some five minutes in all, and passes into the street. With a glance upward at the dimly lighted windows of Sir Leicester's room, he sets off, full swing, to the nearest coach-stand, picks out the horse for his money, and directs to be driven to the shooting-gallery. Mr. Bucket does not claim to be a scientific judge of horses, but he lays out a little money on the principal events in that line, and generally sums up his knowledge of the subject in the remark that when he sees a horse as can go, he knows him. His knowledge is not at fault in the present instance. Clattering over the stones at a dangerous pace, yet thoughtfully bringing his keen eyes to bear on every slinking creature whom he passes in the midnight streets, and even on the lights in upper windows where people are going or gone to bed, and on all the turnings that he rattles by— and alike on the heavy sky, and on the earth where the snow lies thin, for something may present itself to assist him, anywhere. He dashes to his destination at such a speed, that when he stops, the horse half smothers him in a cloud of steam. "'Unbear him half a moment to freshen him up, and I'll be back.' He runs up the long wooden entry, and finds the trooper smoking his pipe. "'I thought I should, George, after what you've gone through, my lad.' "'I haven't a word to spare. Now, honour, all to save a woman. Miss Summerson, that was here when Gridley died. That was the name, I know. All right. Where do she live?' The trooper has just come from there, and gives him the address, near Oxford Street. "'You won't repent it, George. Good night.' He is off again, with an impression of having seen Phil sitting by the frosty fire, staring at him open-mouthed, and gallops away again, and gets out in a cloud of steam again. Mr. Jarndyce, the only person up in the house, is just going to bed, rises from his book on hearing the rapid ringing at the bell, and comes down to the door in his dressing-gown. "'Don't be alarmed, sir.' In a moment his visitor is confidential with him in the hall, has shut the door, and stands with his hand upon the lock. "'I've had the pleasure of seeing you before. Inspector Bucket, look at that handkerchief, sir. Miss Esther Summerson's. Found it myself.' put away in a drawer of Lady Dedlock's, quarter of an hour ago. Not a moment to lose. Match of life or death. 
"'You know Lady Dedlock?' "'Yes.' "'There has been a discovery there to-day. Family affairs have come out. Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet has had a fit, apoplexy or paralysis, and couldn't be brought to, and precious time has been lost. Lady Dedlock disappeared this afternoon and left a letter for him that looks bad. Run your eye over it. Here it is.' Mr. Jarndyce, having read it, asks him what he thinks. "'I don't know. It looks like suicide. Anyways, there's more and more danger every minute of its drawing to that. I'd give a hundred pound an hour to have got the start of the present time. Now, Mr. Jarndyce, I'm employed by Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet to follow her and find her, to save her, and to take her his forgiveness. I've money and full power, but I want something else. I want Miss Summerson.' Mr. Jarndyce, in a troubled voice, repeats, "'Miss Summerson?' "'Now, Mr. Jarndyce,' Mr. Bucket has read his face with the greatest attention all along, "'I speak to you as a gentleman of a humane art, and under such pressing circumstances as don't often happen. If ever delay was dangerous, it's dangerous now, and if ever you couldn't afterwards forgive yourself for causing it, this is the time.' eight or ten hours worth as i tell you a hundred pound apiece at least have been lost since lady dedlock disappeared i'm charged to find her i am inspector bucket besides all the rest that's heavy on her she has upon her as she believes suspicion of murder if i follow her alone she being in ignorance of what sir lester dedlock baronet has communicated to me may be driven to desperation but if i follow her in company with a young lady answering to the description of a young lady that she has a tenderness for i ask no question and i say no more than that she will give me credit for being friendly let me come up with her and be able to have the hold upon her of putting that young lady forward and i'll save her and prevail with her if she is alive let me come up with her alone hard matter and i'll do me best but i don't answer for what the best may be time flies it's getting on for one o'clock when one strikes there's another hour gone and it's worth a thousand pound now instead of a hundred this is all true and the pressing nature of the case cannot be questioned mr jarndyce begs him to remain there while he speaks to miss summerson mr bucket says he will but acting on his usual principle does no such thing following upstairs instead and keeping his man in sight so he remains dodging and lurking about in the gloom of the staircase while they confer in a very little time mr jarndyce comes down and tells him that miss summerson will join him directly and place herself under his protection to accompany him where he pleases mr bucket satisfied expresses high approval and awaits her coming at the door there he mounts a high tower in his mind and looks out far and wide many solitary figures he perceives creeping through the streets many solitary figures out on heaths and roads and lying under haystacks, but the figure that he seeks is not among them. Other solitaries he perceives, in nooks of bridges, looking over, and in shadowed places down by the river's level, and a dark, dark, shapeless object drifting with the tide, more solitary than all, clings with the drowning hold on his attention. Where is she? Living or dead, where is she? if as he folds the handkerchief and carefully puts it up it were able with an enchanted power to bring before him the place where she found it and the night landscape near the cottage where it covered the little child would he descry her there on the waste where the brick kilns are burning with a pale blue flare where the straw roofs of the wretched huts in which the bricks are made are being scattered by the wind 
where the clay and water are hard frozen, and the mill in which the gaunt blind horse goes round all day, looks like an instrument of human torture. Traversing this deserted, blighted spot, there is a lonely figure, with the sad world to itself, pelted by the snow, and driven by the wind, and cast out, it would seem, from all companionship. It is the figure of a woman, too, but it is miserably dressed, and no such clothes ever came through the hall and out at the great door of the deadlocked mansion. End of chapter 56《Chapter 57 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 57 Esther's Narrative. I had gone to bed and fallen asleep when my guardian knocked at the door of my room and begged me to get up directly. On my hurrying to speak to him and learn what had happened, he told me, after a word or two of preparation, that there had been a discovery at Sir Leicester Dedlock's, that my mother had fled, that a person was now at our door who was empowered to convey to her the fullest assurances of affectionate protection and forgiveness, if he could possibly find her, and that I was sought for to accompany him in the hope that my entreaties might prevail upon her if his failed. Something to this general purpose I made out, but I was thrown into such a tumult of alarm and hurry and distress, that in spite of every effort I could make to subdue my agitation, I did not seem to myself fully to recover my right mind until hours had passed. But I dressed and wrapped up expeditiously, without waking Charlie or any one, and went down to Mr. Bucket, who was the person entrusted with the secret. In taking me to him, my guardian told me this, and also explained how it was that he had come to think of me. Mr. Bucket, in a low voice, by the light of my guardian's candle, read to me in the hall a letter that my mother had left upon her table, and I suppose within ten minutes of my having been aroused, I was sitting beside him, rolling swiftly through the streets. His manner was very keen, and yet considerate, when he explained to me that a great deal might depend on my being able to answer, without confusion, a few questions that he wished to ask me. These were, chiefly, whether I had had much communication with my mother, to whom he only referred as Lady Dedlock, when and where I had spoken with her last, and how she had become possessed of my handkerchief. When I had satisfied him on these points, he asked me particularly to consider, taking time to think, whether within my knowledge there was any one, no matter where, in whom she might be at all likely to confide under circumstances of the last necessity. I could think of no one but my guardian, but by and by I mentioned Mr. Boythorn. He came into my mind as connected with his old chivalrous manner of mentioning my mother's name, and with what my guardian had informed me of his engagement to her sister and his unconscious connection with her unhappy story. My companion had stopped the driver while we held this conversation, that we might the better hear each other. He now told him to go on again, and said to me, after considering within himself for a few moments, that he had made up his mind how to proceed. He was quite willing to tell me what his plan was, 
but I did not feel clear enough to understand it. We had not driven very far from our lodgings when we stopped in a by-street at a public-looking place lighted up with gas. Mr. Bucket took me in and sat me in an armchair by a bright fire. It was now past one, as I saw by the clock against the wall. Two police officers, looking in their perfectly neat uniform, not at all like people who were up all night, were quietly writing at a desk, and the place seemed very quiet altogether, except for some beating and calling out at distant doors underground, to which nobody paid any attention. A third man in uniform, whom Mr. Bucket called, and to whom he whispered his instructions, went out, and then the two others advised together while one wrote from Mr. Bucket's subdued dictation. It was a description of my mother that they were busy with, for Mr. Bucket brought it to me when it was done, and read it in a whisper. It was very accurate indeed. The second officer, who had attended to it closely, then copied it out, and called in another man in uniform. There were several in an outer room, who took it up and went away with it. All this was done with the greatest dispatch, and without the waste of a moment, yet nobody was at all hurried. As soon as the paper was sent out upon its travels, the two officers resumed their former quiet work of writing with neatness and care. Mr. Bucket thoughtfully came and warmed the soles of his boots, first one and then the other, at the fire. "'Are you well wrapped up, Miss Summerson?' he asked me, as his eyes met mine. "'It's a desperate sharp night for a young lady to be out in.' I told him I cared for no weather, and was warmly clothed. "'It may be a long job,' he observed, "'but so that it ends well, never mind, miss.' "'I pray to heaven it may end well,' said I. He nodded comfortingly. "'You see, whatever you do, don't you go and fret yourself. You keep yourself cool and equal for anything that may happen, and it'll be the better for you. The better for me, the better for Lady Dedlock.' and the better for Sir Lester Dedlock, Baronet." He was really very kind and gentle, and as he stood before the fire warming his boots and rubbing his face with his forefinger, I felt a confidence in his sagacity which reassured me. It was not yet a quarter to two when I heard horses' feet and wheels outside. "'Now, Miss Summerson,' said he, "'we are off, if you please.' He gave me his arm and the two officers courteously bowed me out, and we found at the door a phaeton or barouche with a postillion and post-horses. Mr. Bucket handed me in, and took his own seat on the box. The man in uniform, whom he had sent to fetch this equipage, then handed him up a dark lantern at his request, and when he had given a few directions to the driver, we rattled away. I was far from sure that I was not in a dream, we rattled with great rapidity through such a labyrinth of streets that I soon lost all idea where we were, except that we had crossed and recrossed the river, and still seemed to be traversing a low-lying, waterside, dense neighbourhood of narrow thoroughfares, chequered by docks and basins, high piles of warehouses, swing-bridges and masts of ships. At length we stopped at the corner of a little slimy turning, which the wind from the river, rushing up it, did not purify, and I saw my companion, by the light of his lantern, in conference with several men, who looked like a mixture of police and sailors. Against the mouldering wall by which they stood, there was a bill, 
on which I could discern the words, found drowned. And this, and an inscription about drags, possessed me with the awful suspicion shadowed forth in our visit to that place. I had no need to remind myself that I was not there by the indulgence of any feeling of mine to increase the difficulties of the search, or to lessen its hopes, or enhance its delays. I remained quiet, but what I suffered in that dreadful spot I never can forget, and still it was like the horror of a dream. A man, yet dark and muddy, in long swollen sodden boots, and a hat like them, was called out of a boat and whispered with Mr. Bucket, who went away with him down some slippery steps, as if to look at something secret that he had to show. They came back, wiping their hands upon their coats, after turning over something wet. But, thank God, it was not what I feared. After some further conference, Mr. Bucket, whom everybody seemed to know and defer to, went in with the others at a door, and left me in the carriage while the driver walked up and down by his horses to warm himself. The tide was coming in, as I judged from the sound it made, and I could hear it break at the end of the alley with a little rush towards me. It never did so, and I thought it did so, hundreds of times, in what could have been at the most a quarter of an hour, and probably was less. But the thought shuddered through me that it would cast my mother at the horse's feet. Mr. Bucket came out again, exhorting the others to be vigilant, darkened his lantern, and once more took his seat. "'Don't you be alarmed, Miss Summerson, on account of our coming down here,' he said, turning to me. "'I only want to have everything in train, and to know that it is in train, by looking after it myself. Get on, my lad.' We appeared to retrace the way we had come. Not that I had taken note of any particular objects in my perturbed state of mind, but judging from the general character of the streets. We called at another office or station for a minute, and crossed the river again. During the whole of this time, and during the whole search, my companion, wrapped up on the box, never relaxed in his vigilance a single moment. But when we crossed the bridge he seemed, if possible, to be more on the alert than before. He stood up to look over the parapet. He alighted and went back after a shadowy female figure that flitted past us, and he gazed into the profound black pit of water with a face that made my heart die within me. The river had a fearful look, so overcast and secret, creeping away so fast between the low flat lines of shore, so heavy with indistinct and awful shapes, both of substance and shadow, so death-like and mysterious. I have seen it many times since then, by sunlight and by moonlight, but never free from the impressions of that journey. In my memory, the lights upon the bridge are always burning dim. The cutting wind is eddying round the homeless woman whom we pass. The monotonous wheels are whirling on, and the light of the carriage lamps, reflected back, looks palely in upon me, a face rising out of the dreaded water. Clattering and clattering through the empty streets, we came at length from the pavement on to dark, smooth roads, and began to leave the houses behind us. After a while I recognised the familiar way to St. Albans. At Barnet fresh horses were ready for us, and we changed and went on. It was very cold indeed, and the open country was white with snow, though none was falling then. 
"'An old acquaintance of yours, this road, Miss Summerson,' said Mr. Bucket cheerfully. "'Yes,' I returned. "'Have you gathered any intelligence?' "'None that can be quite depended on as yet,' he answered. "'But it's early times as yet.' He had gone into every late or early public house where there was a light. There were not a few at that time, the road being then much frequented by drovers, and had got down to talk to the turnpike-keepers. I had heard him ordering drink and chinking money, and making himself agreeable and merry everywhere, but whenever he took his seat upon the box again, his face resumed its watchful, steady look, and he always said to the driver, in the same business tone, "'Get on, my lad.' With all these stoppages, it was between five and six o'clock, and we were yet a few miles short of St. Albans, when he came out of one of these houses, and handed me in a cup of tea. "'Drink it, Miss Summerson. It'll do you good. You're beginning to get more yourself now, ain't you?' I thanked him, and said I hoped so. "'You was what you may call stunned at first, he returned. "'And, Lord, no wonder. Don't speak loud, my dear. It's all right. She's on ahead.' I don't know what joyful exclamation I made, or was going to make, but he put up his finger, and I stopped myself. "'Passed through here on foot this evening, about eight or nine. I heard of her first at the archway toll over at Highgate, but couldn't make quite sure. Traced her all along, on and off, picked her up at one place, and dropped her at another, but she's before us now safe. Take hold of this cup and saucer, Osler. Now, if you wasn't brought up to the butter trade, look out and see if you can catch half a crown in your t'other hand. One, two, three, and there you are. Now, my lad, try a gallop. We were soon in St. Albans, and alighted a little before day, when I was just beginning to arrange and comprehend the occurrences of the night, and really to believe that they were not a dream, leaving the carriage at the posting-house and ordering fresh horses to be ready, my companion gave me his arm, and we went towards home. "'As this is your regular abode, Miss Summerson, you see,' he observed, "'I should like to know whether you've been asked for by any stranger answering the description, or whether Mr. Jarndyce has. I don't much expect it, but it might be.' As we ascended the hill, he looked about him with a sharp eye. The day was now breaking and reminded me that I had come down it one night, as I had reason for remembering, with my little servant and poor Joe, whom he called Tuffy. I wondered how he knew that. "'When you passed a man upon the road just yonder, you know,' said Mr. Bucket. "'Yes, I remember that, too, very well.' "'That was me,' said Mr. Bucket. Seeing my surprise, he went on, I drove down in a gig that afternoon to look after that boy. You might have heard my wheels when you came out to look after him yourself, for I was aware of you and your little maid going up when I was walking the horse down. Making an inquiry or two about him in the town, I soon heard what company he was in, and was coming among the brickfields to look for him when I observed you bringing him home here. Had he committed any crime? I asked. "'None was charged against him,' said Mr. Bucket, coolly lifting off his hat. "'But I suppose he wasn't over-particular. 
No, what I wanted him for was in connection with keeping this very matter of Lady Dedlock quiet. He had been making his tongue more free than welcome, as to a small accidental service he had been paid for by the deceased Mr. Tulkinghorn. And it wouldn't do, at any sort of price, to have him playing those games. So, having warned him out of London, I made an afternoon of it to warn him to keep out of it now he was away, and to go farther from it, and maintain a bright lookout that I didn't catch him coming back again. "'Poor creature,' said I. "'Poor enough,' assented Mr. Bucket, "'and trouble enough, and well enough away from London, or anywhere else. I was regularly turned on my back when I found him taken up by your establishment, I do assure you.' I asked him why. "'Why, my dear?' said Mr. Bucket. "'Naturally, there was no end to his tongue then. He might as well have been born with a yard and a half of it.' and a remnant over. Although I remember this conversation now, my head was in confusion at the time, and my power of attention hardly did more than enable me to understand that he entered into these particulars to divert me. With the same kind intention, manifestly, he often spoke to me of indifferent things, while his face was busy with the one object that we had in view. He still pursued this subject as we turned in at the garden gate. "'Ah!' said Mr. Bucket. "'Here we are, and a nice retired place it is. Puts a man in mind of the country-house, in the woodpecker-tapping, that was known by the smoke, which so gracefully curled. They're early with the kitchen-fire, that denotes good servants. But what you've always got to be careful of with servants is who comes to see em. You never know what they're up to if you don't know that. And another thing, my dear—' Whenever you find a young man behind the kitchen door, you give that young man in charge on suspicion of being secreted in a dwelling-house with an unlawful purpose. We were now in front of the house. He looked attentively and closely at the gravel for footprints, before he raised his eyes to the windows. Do you generally put that elderly young gentleman in the same room when he's on a visit here, Miss Summerson? He inquired glancing at Mr. Skimpole's usual chamber. "'You know Mr. Skimpole,' said I. "'What do you call him again?' returned Mr. Bucket, bending down his ear. "'Skimpole, is it? I've often wondered what his name might be. Skimpole. Not John, I should say, nor yet Jacob.' "'Harold,' I told him. "'Harold. Yes. He's a queer bird, is Harold.' said Mr. Bucket, eyeing me with great expression. "'He is a singular character,' said I. "'No idea of money,' observed Mr. Bucket. "'He takes it, though.' I involuntarily returned for answer that I perceived Mr. Bucket knew him. "'Why, now I'll tell you, Miss Summerson,' he replied, "'your mind will be all the better for not running on one point too continually, and I'll tell you for a change.' It was him as pointed out to me where Tuffy was. I made up my mind that night to come to the door and ask for Tuffy, if that was all, but, willing to try a move or so first, if any such was on the board, I just pitched up a morsel of gravel at that window where I saw a shadow. As soon as Harold opens it, and I've had a look at him, thinks I, you're the man for me. 
So, I smoothed him down a bit, about not wanting to disturb the family after they was gone to bed, and about its being a thing to be regretted that charitable young ladies should harbour vagrants, and then, when I pretty well understood his ways, I said I should consider a fiper note well bestowed, if I could relieve the premises of Tuffy without causing any noise or trouble. Then says he, lifting up his eyebrows in the gayest way, "'It's no use mentioning a fiper note to me, my friend, because I'm a mere child in such matters, and have no idea of money. Of course I understood what is taking it so easy meant, and being now quite sure he was the man for me, I wrapped the note round a little stone, and threw it up to him. "'Well,' he laughs and beams, and looks as innocent as you like, and says, "'But I don't know the value of these things. What am I to do with this?' "'Spend it, sir,' says I. "'But I shall be taken in,' he says. "'They won't give me the right change. I shall lose it. It's no use to me.' "'Lord, you never saw such a face as he carried it with. Of course he told me where to find Tuffy, and I found him.' I regarded this as very treacherous on the part of Mr. Skimpole towards my guardian, and as passing the usual bounds of his childish innocence. "'Bounds, my dear?' returned Mr. Bucket. "'Bounds? Now, Miss Summerson, I'll give you a piece of advice that your husband will find useful when you're happily married and have got a family about you. Whenever a person says to you that they are as innocent as can be in all concerning money— Look well after your own money, for they are dead certain to collar it if they can. Whenever a person proclaims to you, in worldly matters I am a child, you consider that that person is only a crying off from being held accountable, and that you have got that person's number, and it's number one. Now, I am not a poetical man myself, except in a vocal way when it goes round a company, but I am a practical one, and that's my experience.' "'So's this rule. Fast and loose in one thing, fast and loose in everything. I never knew it to fail. No more will you, nor no one. With which caution to the unwary, my dear, I take the liberty of pulling this ear bell, and so go back to our business.' I believe it had not been for a moment out of his mind, any more than it had been out of my mind, or out of his face. The whole household were amazed to see me, without any notice, at that time in the morning, and so accompanied, and their surprise was not diminished by my inquiries. No one, however, had been there. It could not be doubted that this was the truth. "'Then, Miss Summerson,' said my companion, "'we can't be too soon at the cottage where those brickmakers are to be found. Most inquiries there I leave to you, if you'll be so good as to make them.' The naturalist way is the best way, and the naturalist way is your own way. We set off again immediately. On arriving at the cottage, we found it shut up and apparently deserted. But one of the neighbours who knew me, and who came out when I was trying to make someone hear, informed me that the two women and their husbands now lived together in another house, made of loose, rough bricks, which stood on the margin of the piece of ground where the kilns were and where the long rows of bricks were drying. We lost no time repairing to this place, which was within a few hundred yards, and as the door stood ajar, I pushed it open. There were only three of them sitting at breakfast, 
the child lying asleep on a bed in the corner. It was Jenny, the mother of the dead child, who was absent. The other woman rose on seeing me, and the men, though they were, as usual, sulky and silent, each gave me a morose nod of recognition. A look passed between them when Mr. Bucket followed me in, and I was surprised to see that the woman evidently knew him. I had asked leave to enter, of course. Liz, the only name by which I knew her, rose to give me her own chair, but I sat down on a stool near the fire, and Mr. Bucket took a corner of the bedstead. Now that I had to speak, and was among people with whom I was not familiar, I became conscious of being hurried and giddy. It was very difficult to begin, and I could not help bursting into tears. "'Liz,' said I, "'I have come a long way in the night, and through the snow, to inquire after a lady.' "'Who has been here, you know?' Mr. Bucket struck in, addressing the whole group with a composed, propitiatory face. "'That's the lady, the young lady means. The lady that was here last night, you know.' "'And who told you as there was anybody here?' inquired Jenny's husband, who had made a surly stop in his eating to listen, and now measured him with his eye. "'A person of the name of Michael Jackson, with a blue velveteen waistcoat, with a double row of mother-of-pearl buttons,' Mr. Bucket immediately answered. "'He had as good mind his own business, whoever he is,' growled the man. "'He's out of employment, I believe,' said Mr. Bucket, apologetically for Michael Jackson, "'and so gets talking.' The woman had not resumed her chair, but stood faltering with her hand upon its broken back, looking at me. I thought she would have spoken to me privately, if she had dared. She was still in this attitude of uncertainty when her husband, who was eating with a lump of bread and fat in one hand, and his clasp-knife in the other, struck the handle of his knife violently on the table, and told her with an oath to mind her own business at any rate, and sit down. "'I should like to have seen Jenny very much,' said I, "'for I am sure she would have told me all she could about this lady, whom I am very anxious indeed. You cannot think how anxious—' to overtake. Will Jenny be here soon? Where is she?' The woman had a great desire to answer, but the man, with another oath, openly kicked at her foot with his heavy boot. He left it to Jenny's husband to say what he chose, and after a dogged silence the latter turned his shaggy head towards me. "'I'm not partial to gentlefolks coming in my place. As you've heard me say afore now, I think, miss—' I let their places be, and it's curious they can't let my place be. There'd be a pretty shine made if I was to go a-visiting them, I think. Howsoever, I don't so much complain of you as of some others, and I'm agreeable to make you a civil answer, though I give notice that I'm not a-going to be drawed like a badger. Will Jenny be here soon? No, she won't. Where is she? She's gone up to London. Did she go last night? I asked. Did she go last night? Ah, she went last night. He answered with a sulky jerk of his head. But was she here when the lady came? And what did the lady say to her? And where is the lady gone? I beg and pray you to be so kind as to tell me, 
said I, for I am in great distress to know. If my master would let me speak, and not say a word of harm, the woman timidly began. Your master, said her husband, muttering an imprecation with slow emphasis, will break your neck if you meddle with what don't concern you. After another silence, the husband of the absent woman, turning to me again, answered me with his usual grumbling unwillingness. "'Was Jenny here when the lady come? Yes, she was here when the lady come. What did the lady say to her? Well, I'll tell you what the lady said to her. She said, you remember me as come one time to talk to you about the young lady as had been a wizarding of you. You remember me as give you something handsome for a handkerchief what she had left. Ah, she remembered. So we all did. Well, then, was that young lady up at the house now? Now, she wa'n't up at the house now. Well, then, looky here. The lady was upon a journey, all alone, strange as we might think it, and could she rest herself where you're a-settin' for a hour or so? Yeah, she could, and so she did. Then she went. It might be at twenty minutes past eleven, and it might be at twenty minutes past twelve. We ain't got no watches here to know the time by, nor yet clocks. Where did she go? Oh, I don't know where she'd goed. She went one way, and Jenny went another. One went right to London, and t'other went right from it. That's all about it. Ask this man. He hid it all, and seed it all. He knows. The other man repeated, That's all about it. Was the lady crying? I inquired. Devil a bit returned the first man. Her shoes was the worse, and her clothes was the worse, but she warn't, not as I see. The woman sat with her arms crossed, and her eyes upon the ground. Her husband had turned his seat a little, so as to face her, and kept his hammer-like hand upon the table, as if it were in readiness to execute his threat if she disobeyed him. "'I hope you'll not object to my asking your wife,' said I, how the lady looked. "'Come, then,' he gruffly cried to her. "'Hear what she says. Cut it short and tell her.' "'Bad,' replied the woman. "'Pile and exhausted. Very bad. Did she speak much?' "'Not much, but her voice was hoarse.' She answered, looking all the while at her husband for leave. "'Was she faint?' said I. "'Did she eat or drink here?' "'Go on,' said the husband, in answer to her look. "'Tell her, and cut it short.' "'She had a little water, miss, and Jenny fetched her some bread and tea, but she hardly touched it. "'And when she went from here,' I was proceeding, when Jenny's husband impatiently took me up. "'When she went from here, she went right away norrard by the eye-road. "'Ask on the road if you doubt me, and see if it warn't so. "'Now, there's the end. That's all about it.' 
I glanced at my companion, and finding that he had already risen and was ready to depart, thanked them for what they had told me, and took my leave. The woman looked full at Mr. Bucket as he went out, and he looked full at her. "'Now, Miss Summerson,' he said to me as we walked quickly away, "'they've got her ladyship's watch among them. That's a positive fact.' "'You saw it?' I exclaimed. "'Just as good as saw it,' he returned. "'Else why should he talk about his twenty minutes past, and about his having no watch to tell the time by?' Twenty minutes. He don't usually cut his time so fine as that. If he comes to half hours, it's as much as he does. Now, you see, either her ladyship gave him that watch, or he took it. I think she gave it him. Now, what should she give it him for? What should she give it him for? He repeated this question to himself several times, as we hurried on appearing to balance between a variety of answers that arose in his mind if time could be spared said mr bucket which is the only thing that can't be spared in this case i might get it out of that woman but it's too doubtful a chance to trust to under present circumstances they're up to keeping a close eye upon her and any fool knows that a poor creature like her beaten and kicked and scarred and bruised from head to foot will stand by that husband that ill-uses her through thick and thin there's something kept back it's a pity but what we had seen the other woman i regretted it exceedingly for she was very grateful and i felt sure would have resisted no entreaty of mine it's possible miss summerson said mr bucket pondering on that her ladyship sent her up to london with some word for you and it's possible that her husband got the watch to let her go it don't come out altogether so plain as to please me but it's on the cards now i don't take kindly to laying out the money of sir leicester dedlock baronet on these roofs and i don't see my way to the usefulness of it at present no so far our road miss summerson is forward straight ahead and keeping everything quiet we called at home once more that i might send a hasty note to my guardian and then we hurried back to where we had left the carriage the horses were brought out as soon as we were seen coming and we were on the road again in a few minutes it had set in snowing at daybreak and it now snowed hard the air was so thick with the darkness of the day, and the density of the fall, that we could see but a very little way in any direction. Although it was extremely cold, the snow was but partially frozen, and it churned, with a sound as if it were a beach of small shells, under the hoofs of the horses into mire and water. They sometimes slipped and floundered for a mile together, and we were obliged to come to a standstill to rest them one horse fell three times in this first stage and trembled so and was so shaken that the driver had to dismount from his saddle and lead him at last i could eat nothing and could not sleep i grew so nervous under those delays and the slow pace at which we travelled that i had an unreasonable desire upon me to get out and walk yielding to my companion's better sense however i remained where i was all this time kept fresh by a certain enjoyment of the work in which he was engaged, 
He was up and down at every house we came to, addressing people whom he had never beheld before as old acquaintances, running in to warm himself at every fire he saw, talking and drinking and shaking hands at every bar and tap, friendly with every wagoner, wheelwright, blacksmith, and toll-taker, yet never seeming to lose time, and always mounting to the box again, with his watchful steady face, and his business-like, "'Get on, my lad!' When we were changing horses the next time, he came from the stable-yard, with the wet snow encrusted upon him, and dropping off him, plashing and crashing through it to his wet knees, as he had been doing frequently since we left St. Albans, and spoke to me at the carriage-side. "'Keep up your spirits. It's certainly true that you came on here, Miss Summerson. There's not a doubt of the dress by this time, and the dress has been seen here.' "'Still on foot,' said I. "'Still on foot. I think the gentleman you mentioned must be the point she's aiming at. And yet I don't like his living down in her own part of the country, neither.' "'I know so little,' said I. "'There may be someone else nearer here of whom I never heard.' "'That's true. But whatever you do, don't you fall a-crying, my dear, and don't you worry yourself no more than you can help. Get on, my lad.' The sleet fell all that day unceasingly. A thick mist came on early, and it never rose or lightened for a moment. Such roads as I had never seen. I sometimes feared we had missed the way— and got into the ploughed grounds or the marshes. If I ever thought of the time I had been out, it presented itself as an indefinite period of great duration, and I seemed, in a strange way, never to have been free from the anxiety under which I then laboured. As we advanced, I began to feel misgivings that my companion lost confidence. He was the same as before, with all the roadside people, but he looked graver when he sat by himself on the box. I saw his finger uneasily going across and across his mouth, during the whole of one long weary stage. I overheard that he began to ask the drivers of coaches, and other vehicles coming towards us, what passengers they had seen in other coaches and vehicles that were in advance. Their replies did not encourage him. He always gave me a reassuring back of his finger, and lift of his eyelid, as he got upon the box again. But he seemed perplexed now, when he said, "'Get on, my lad.' At last, when we were changing, he told me that he had lost the track of the dress so long that he began to be surprised. It was nothing, he said, to lose such a track for one while, and to take it up for another while, and so on. But it had disappeared here in an unaccountable manner, and we had not come upon it since. This corroborated the apprehensions I had formed, when he began to look at direction-posts, and to leave the carriage at cross-roads for a quarter of an hour at a time, while he explored them. But I was not to be downhearted, he told me, for it was as likely as not that the next stage might set us right again. The next stage, however, ended as that one ended. We had no new clue. There was a spacious inn here, solitary, but a comfortable substantial building and as we drove in under a large gateway before i knew it where a landlady and her pretty daughters came to the carriage door entreating me to alight and refresh myself while the horses were making ready i thought it would be uncharitable to refuse they took me upstairs to a warm room and left me there it was at the corner of the house i remember 
looking two ways, on one side to a stable-yard open to a by-road, where the ostlers were unharnessing the splashed and tired horses from the muddy carriage, and beyond that to the by-road itself, across which the sign was heavily swinging, on the other side to a wood of dark pine-trees. Their branches were encumbered with snow, and it silently dropped off in wet heaps while I stood at the window. Night was setting in, and its bleakness was enhanced by the contrast of the pictured fire glowing and gleaming in the window-pane. As I looked among the stems of the trees, and followed the discoloured marks in the snow, where the thaw was sinking into it and undermining it, I thought of the motherly face, brightly set off by daughters, that had just now welcomed me, and of my mother, lying down in such a wood to die. I was frightened when I found them all about me, but I remembered that before I fainted I tried very hard not to do it, and that was some little comfort. They cushioned me up on a large sofa by the fire, and then the comely landlady told me that I must travel no further to-night, but must go to bed. But this put me into such a tremble, lest they should detain me there, that she soon recalled her words, and compromised for a rest of half an hour. A good endearing creature she was, she and her three fair girls all so busy about me. I was to take hot soup and broiled fowl, while Mr. Bucket dried himself and dined elsewhere. But I could not do it when a snug round table was presently spread by the fireside, though I was very unwilling to disappoint them. However, I could take some toast and some hot negus, and as I really enjoyed that refreshment, it made some recompense. Punctual to the time, at the half-hour's end, the carriage came rumbling under the gateway, and they took me down, warmed, refreshed, comforted by kindness, and safe, I assured them, not to faint any more. After I had got in, and taken a grateful leave of them all, the youngest daughter, a blooming girl of nineteen, who was to be first married, they had told me, got upon the carriage step, reached in, and kissed me. I have never seen her from that hour, but I think of her to this hour as my friend. The transparent windows with the fire and light looking so bright and warm from the cold darkness out of doors were soon gone, and again we were crushing and churning the loose snow. We went on with toil enough, but the dismal roads were not much worse than they had been, and the stage was only nine miles. My companion smoking on the box, I had thought at the last inn of begging him to do so, when I saw him standing at a great fire and a comfortable cloud of tobacco, was as vigilant as ever, and as quickly down and up again when we came to any human abode or any human creature. He had lighted his little dark lantern, which seemed to be a favourite with him, for we had lamps to the carriage, and every now and then he turned it upon me to see that I was doing well. There was a folding window to the carriage head, but I never closed it for it seemed like shutting out hope. We came to the end of the stage, and still the lost trace was not recovered. I looked at him anxiously when we stopped to change, but I knew by his yet graver face, as he stood watching the ostlers, that he had heard nothing. Almost in an instant afterwards, as I leaned back in my seat, he looked in, with his lighted lantern in his hand, an excited and quite different man. "'What is it?' said I, starting. Is she here? No, no, don't deceive yourself, my dear. Nobody's here, 
but I've got it. The crystallized snow was in his eyelashes, in his hair, lying in ridges on his dress. He had to shake it from his face and get his breath before he spoke to me. Now, Miss Summerson, said he, beating his finger on the apron, don't you be disappointed at what I'm a-going to do. You know me. I'm Inspector Bucket, and you can trust me. We've come a long way. Never mind. Four horses out there for the next stage up. Quick. There was a commotion in the yard, and a man came running out of the stables to know if he meant up or down. Up, I tell you, up. Ain't it English? Up. Up, said I, astonished. To London? Are we going back? Miss Summerson, he answered. Back, straight back as a die. You know me. Don't be afraid. I'll follow the other by God. The other? I repeated. Who? You called her Jenny, didn't you? I'll follow her. Bring those two pair out here for a crown, my man. Wake up, some of you. You will not desert this lady we are in search of. You will not abandon her on such a night, and in such a state of mind as I know her to be in, said I, in an agony, and grasping his hand. You're right, my dear. I won't. But I'll follow the other. Look alive here with them horses. Send a man forward in the saddle to the next stage, and let him send another forward again, and order four on, up, right through. My darling, don't you be afraid. These orders, and the way in which he ran about the yard, urging them, caused a general excitement that was scarcely less bewildering to me than the sudden change. But in the height of the confusion, a mounted man galloped away to order the relays, and our horses were put to with great speed. "'My dear,' said Mr. Bucket, jumping to his seat and looking in again, "'you'll excuse me, if I'm too familiar. Don't you fret and worry yourself no more than you can help. I say nothing else at present, but you know me, my dear. Now, don't you?' I endeavoured to say that I knew he was far more capable than I of deciding what we ought to do, but was he sure that this was right? Could I not go forward by myself in search of— I grasped his hand again in my distress, and whispered it to him. Of my own mother? My dear, he answered, I know, I know. And would I put you wrong, do you think? Inspector Bucket, now you know me, don't you? What could I say but yes? "'Then you keep up as good a heart as you can, "'and you rely upon me for standing by you, "'no less than by Sir Lester Dedlock Baronet. "'Now, are you right there?' "'All right, sir.' "'Off she goes, then, and get on, my lads.' "'We were again upon the melancholy road by which we had come.' tearing up the miry sleet and thawing snow as if they were torn up by a water wheel end of chapter 57「chapter 58 of bleak house this librivox recording is in the public domain Recorded by Mill Nicholson Bleak House by Charles Dickens Chapter 58 A Wintry Day and Night 
still impassive as behoves its breeding the deadlock town-house carries itself as usual towards the street of dismal grandeur there are powdered heads from time to time in the little windows of the hall looking out at the untaxed powder falling all day from the sky and in the same conservatory there is peach-blossom turning itself exotically to the great hall fire from the nipping weather out of doors it is given out that my lady has gone down into lincolnshire but is expected to return presently rumour busy overmuch however will not go down into lincolnshire it persists in flitting and chattering about town it knows that that poor unfortunate man sir leicester has been sadly used it hears my dear child all sorts of shocking things it makes the world of five miles round quite merry not to know that there is something wrong at the deadlocks is to augur yourself unknown one of the peachy-cheeked charmers with the skeleton throats is already apprised of all the principal circumstances that will come out before the lords on sir leicester's application for a bill of divorce at blaze and sparkles the jewellers and at sheen and glosses the mercers it is and will be for several hours the topic of the age the feature of the century the patronesses of those establishments albeit so loftily inscrutable being as nicely weighed and measured there as any other article of the stock in trade are perfectly understood in this new fashion by the rawest hand behind the counter our people mr jones says blaze and sparkle to the hand in question on engaging him our people sir are sheep mere sheep where two or three marked ones go all the rest follow keep those two or three in your eye mr jones and you have the flock so likewise sheen and gloss to their jones in reference to knowing where to have the fashionable people and how to bring what they sheen and gloss choose into fashion on similar unerring principles mr sladdery the librarian and indeed the great farmer of gorgeous sheep admits this very day why yes sir there certainly are reports concerning lady dedlock very current indeed among my high connection sir you see my high connection must talk about something sir and it's only to get a subject into vogue with one or two ladies i could name to make it go down with the whole just what i should have done with those ladies sir in the case of any novelty you had left to me to bring in they have done of themselves in this case through knowing lady dedlock and being perhaps a little innocently jealous of her too sir you'll find sir that this topic will be very popular among my high connection if it had been a speculation sir it would have brought money and when i say so you may trust to my being right sir for i have made it my business to study my high connection and to be able to wind it up like a clock sir thus rumour thrives in the capital and will not go down into lincolnshire by half-past five post-meridian horse-guards time it has been elicited a new remark from the honourable mr stables which bids fair to outshine the old one on which he has so long rested his colloquial reputation this sparkling sally as to the effect that although he always knew she was the best groomed woman in the stud he had no idea she was a bolter it is immensely received in turf circles at feasts and festivals also in firmaments she has often graced and among constellations she outshone but yesterday she is still the prevalent subject what is it who is it when was it where was it how was it she is discussed by her dear friends with all the genteelest slang in vogue 
with the last new word, the last new manner, the last new drawl, and the perfection of polite indifference. A remarkable feature of the theme is that it is found to be so inspiring that several people come out upon it who never came out before, positively say things. William Buffy carries one of these smartnesses from the place where he dines down to the house, where the whip, for his party, hands it about with his snuff-box, to keep men together who want to be off, with such effect that the speaker, who has had it privately insinuated into his own ear under the corner of his wig, cries, "'Order at the bar!' three times, without making an impression." and not the least amazing circumstance connected with her being vaguely the town talk is that people hovering on the confines of mr sladdery's high connection people who know nothing and ever did know nothing about her think it essential to their reputation to pretend that she is their topic too and to retail her at second hand with the last new word and the last new manner and the last new drawl and the last new polite indifference and all the rest of it all at second hand, but considered equal to new, in inferior systems, and to fainter stars. If there be any man of letters, art, or science among these little dealers, how noble in him to support the feeble sisters and such majestic crutches! So goes the wintry day outside the Dedlock Mansion. How within it! Sir Leicester, lying in his bed, can speak a little, though with difficulty and indistinctness. He is enjoined to silence and to rest, and they have given him some opiate to lull his pain, for his old enemy is very hard with him. He is never asleep, though sometimes he seems to fall into a dull waking doze. He caused his bedstead to be moved out nearer to the window, when he heard it was such inclement weather, and his head to be so adjusted that he could see the driving snow and sleet. He watches it as it falls throughout the whole wintry day. Upon the least noise in the house, which is kept hushed, his hand is at the pencil. The old housekeeper, sitting by him, knows what he would write, and whispers, "'No, he's not come back yet, Celeste. It was late last night when he went. He's been but a little time gone yet.' He withdraws his hand, and falls to looking at the sleet and snow again, until they seem, by being looked at, to fall so thick and fast that he is obliged to close his eyes for a minute on the giddy whirl of white flakes and icy blots. He began to look at them as soon as it was light. The day is not yet far spent, when he conceives it to be necessary that her rooms should be prepared for her. It is very cold and wet. Let there be good fires. Let them know that she is expected. Please see to it yourself. He writes to this purpose on his slate, and Mrs. Rouncewell, with a heavy heart, obeys. "'For I dread, George,' the old lady says to her son, who waits below to keep her company when she has a little leisure, "'I dread, my dear, that my lady will never more set foot within these walls.' "'That's a bad presentiment, mother.' "'Nor yet within the walls of Chesney Wold, my dear.' "'That's worse. But why, mother?' "'When—' I saw my lady yesterday, George. She looked to me, and I may say at me too, as if the step on the ghost's walk had almost walked her down. Come, come. You alarm yourself with old story fears, mother. No, I don't, my dear. 
"'No, I don't. "'It's going on for sixty year that I've been in this family, "'and I never had any fears for it before. "'But it's breaking up, my dear. "'The great old Dedlock family is breaking up.' "'I hope not, mother.' "'I am thankful I've lived long enough to be with Sir Lester in this illness and trouble, "'for I know I'm not too old.' nor too useless to be a welcomer sight to him than anybody else in my place would be but the step on the ghost's walk will walk my lady down george it has been many a day behind her and now it will pass her and go on well mother dear i say again i hope not ah oh, so do i george the old lady returns "'shaking her head and parting her folded hands. "'But if my fears come true, and he has to know it, who will tell him?' "'Are these her uh, rooms?' "'These are my lady's rooms, just as she left them.' "'Why now?' says the trooper, glancing round him and speaking in a lower voice. "'I begin to understand how you come to think as you do think, mother. "'Rooms get an awful look about them when they're fitted up, like these, "'one person you are used to see in them, "'and that person is away under any shadow, "'let alone being God knows where.' "'He is not far out. "'As all partings foreshadow the great final one, "'so empty rooms, bereft of a familiar presence, mournfully whisper what your room and what mine must one day be my lady's state has a hollow look thus gloomy and abandoned and in the inner apartment where mr bucket last night made his secret perquisition the traces of her dresses and her ornaments even the mirrors accustomed to reflect them when they were a portion of herself have a desolate and vacant air dark and cold as the wintry day is it is darker and colder in these deserted chambers than in many a hut that will barely exclude the weather. And though the servants heap fires in the grates, and set the couches and the chairs within the warm glass screens that let their ruddy light shoot through to the furthest corners, there is a heavy cloud upon the rooms, which no light will dispel. The old housekeeper and her son remain until the preparations are complete, and then she returns again upstairs. Volumnia has taken Mrs. Rouncewell's place in the meantime, though pearl necklaces and rouge pots, however calculated to embellish bath, are but indifferent comforts to the invalid under present circumstances. Volumnia, not being supposed to know, and indeed not knowing, what is the matter, has found it a ticklish task to offer appropriate observations, and consequently has supplied their place with distracting smoothings of the bed-linen, elaborate locomotion on tiptoe, vigilant peeping at her kinsman's eyes, and one exasperating whisper to herself of, "'He is asleep,' in disproof of which superfluous remark Sir Lester has indignantly written on the slate, "'I am not.' Yielding, therefore, the chair at the bedside of the quaint old housekeeper, Volumnia sits at a table a little removed, sympathetically sighing. Sir Lester watches the sleet and snow, and listens for the returning steps that he expects. In the ears of his old servant, looking as if she had stepped out of an old picture-frame to attend a summoned deadlock to another world, the silence is fraught with echoes of her own words. Who will tell him? 
He has been under his valet's hands this morning to be made presentable, and is as well got up as the circumstances will allow. He is propped with pillows, his grey hair is brushed in its usual manner, his linen is arranged to a nicety, and he is wrapped in a responsible dressing-gown. His eyeglass and his watch are ready to his hand. It is necessary, less to his own dignity now perhaps than for her sake, that he should be seen as little disturbed and as much himself as may be. Women will talk, and Volumnia, though a deadlock, is no exceptional case. He keeps her here, there is little doubt, to prevent her talking somewhere else. He is very ill, but he makes his present stand against distress of mind and body most courageously. The fair Volumnia, being one of those sprightly girls who cannot long continue silent, without imminent peril of seizure by the dragon boredom, soon indicates the approach of that monster with a series of undisguisable yawns. Finding it impossible to suppress those yawns, by any other process than conversation, she compliments Mrs. Rouncewell on her son, declaring that he is positively one of the finest figures she ever saw, and as soldierly a looking person, she should think, as what's his name, her favourite life-guardsman, the man she dotes on, the dearest of creatures, who was killed at Waterloo. Sir Leicester hears this tribute with so much surprise, and stares about him in such a confused way, that Mrs. Rouncewell feels it necessary to explain. "'Miss Dedlock, don't speak of my eldest son, Sir Leicester, but my youngest. I have found him. He has come home.' Sir Leicester breaks silence with a harsh cry. "'George! Your son George! Come home, Mrs. Rouncewell!' The old housekeeper wipes her eyes. "'Thank God! Yes, Sir Leicester!' Does this discovery of some one lost, this return of some one so long gone, come upon him as a strong confirmation of his hopes? Does he think, shall I not, with the aid I have, recall her safely after this, there being fewer hours in her case than there are years in his? It is of no use entreating him. He is determined to speak now, and he does, in a thick crowd of sounds, but still intelligible enough to be understood. "'Why did you not tell me, Mrs. Rouncewell?' "'It happened only yesterday, Sir Leicester, and I doubted your being well enough to be talked to of such things.' Besides, the giddy Volumnia now remembers, with her little scream, that nobody was to have known of his being Mrs. Rouncewell's son, and that she was not to have told but Mrs. Rouncewell protests, with warmth enough to swell the stomacher, that of course she would have told Sir Leicester as soon as he got better. "'Where is your son, George, Mrs. Rouncewell?' asks Sir Leicester. Mrs. Rouncewell, not a little alarmed by his disregard of the doctor's injunctions, replies, "'In London.' "'Where in London?' Mrs. Rouncewell is constrained to admit that he is in the house. "'Bring him here to my room. Bring him directly.' The old lady can do nothing but go in search of him. Sir Leicester, with such power of movement as he has, 
arranges himself a little to receive him. When he has done so, he looks out again at the falling sleet and snow, and listens again for the returning steps. A quantity of straw has been tumbled down in the street to deaden the noises there, and she might be driven to the door, perhaps, without his hearing wheels. He is lying thus, apparently forgetful of his newer and minor surprise, when the housekeeper returns, accompanied by her trooper son. Mr. George approaches softly to the bedside, makes his bow, squares his chest, and stands, with his face flushed, very heartily ashamed of himself. "'Good heaven! And it is really George Rouncewell!' exclaimed Sir Leicester. "'Do you remember me, George?' The trooper needs to look at him, to separate this sound from that sound before he knows what he has said. But doing this, and being a little helped by his mother, he replies, "'I must have a very bad memory indeed, Sir Leicester, if I fail to remember you.' "'When I look at you, George Rouncewell,' Sir Leicester observes with difficulty, "'I see something of a boy at Chesney World. I remember well, very well. He looks at the trooper until tears come into his eyes, and then he looks at the sleet and snow again. "'I ask your pardon, Sir Leicester, says the trooper. "'But would you accept of my arms to raise you up? You would lie easier, Sir Leicester, if you would allow me to move you?' "'If you please, George Rouncewell, if you will be so good.' The trooper takes him in his arms like a child, lightly raises him, and turns him with his face more towards the window. "'Thank you. You have your mother's gentleness,' returns Sir Leicester, "'and your own strength. Thank you.' He signs to him with his hand not to go away. George quietly remains at the bedside, waiting to be spoken to. "'Why did you wish for secrecy?' It takes Sir Leicester some time to ask this. "'Truly, I'm not much to boast of, Sir Leicester, and I, I should still, Sir Leicester, if you was not so indisposed, which I hope you will not be long, I should still hope for the favours of being allowed to remain unknown in general. That involves explanations, not very hard to be guessed at, not very well timed here, and not very creditable to myself. However, opinions may differ on a variety of subjects. I should think it would be universally agreed, Sir Leicester, that I am not much to boast of. "'You have been a soldier,' 
observes Sir Leicester. And a faithful one. George makes his military bow. As far as that goes, Sir Leicester, I have done my duty under discipline, and it was the least I could do. You feigned me, says Sir Leicester, whose eyes are much attracted towards him. Far from well, George Rouncewell. I'm very sorry both to hear it and to see it, Sir Leicester. I am sure you are. No. <clears throat> In addition to my elder melody, I have had a sudden and bad attack. Something that deadens making an endeavour to pass one hand down one side, and confuses, touching his lips. George, with a look of assent and sympathy, makes another bow. The different times, when they were both young men, the trooper much the younger of the two, and looked at one another down at Chesney Wold, arise before them both, and soften both. Sir Leicester, evidently with a great determination to say, in his own manner, something that is on his mind, before relapsing into silence, tries to raise himself among his pillows a little more. George, observant of the action, takes him in his arms again, and places him as he desires to be. "'Thank you, George. You are another self to me. You have often carried my spare gun at Chesney World, George. You are familiar to me in these strange circumstances. Very familiar. He has put Sir Leicester's sounder arm over his shoulder in lifting him up, and Sir Leicester is slow in drawing it away again, as he says these words. I was about to add, he presently goes on, I was about to add, respecting this attack, that it was unfortunately simultaneous with a slight misunderstanding between my lady and myself. I do not mean that there was any difference between us, for there has been none, but that there was a 
misunderstanding of certain circumstances important only to ourselves which derives me for a little while of my lady's society she has found it necessary to make a journey i trust will shortly return volumnia do i make myself intelligible the words are not quite under my command in the manner of pronouncing them volumnia understands him perfectly and in truth he delivers himself with far greater plainness than could have been supposed possible a minute ago the effort by which he does so is written in the anxious and labouring expression of his face nothing but the strength of his purpose enables him to make it therefore volumnia i desire to say in your presence and in the presence of my old retainer and friend mrs rouncewell whose truth and fidelity no one can question and in the presence of her son george who comes back like a familiar recollection of my youth in the home of my ancestors at chesney world in case i should relapse in case i should not recover in case i should lose faith my speech and the power of writing though i hope for better things the old housekeeper weeping silently volumnia in the greatest agitation with the freshest bloom on her cheeks the trooper with his arms folded and his head a little bent respectfully attentive therefore i desire to say and to call you all to witness beginning bologna with yourself most solemnly that i am on unaltered terms with lady dedlock that i assert no cause whatever of complaint against her that i have ever had the strongest 
affection for her, and that I retain it undiminished. Say this to herself, and to every one. If you ever say less than this, you will be guilty of deliberate falsehood to me. Volumnia tremblingly protests that she will observe his injunctions to the letter. My lady is too high in position, too handsome, too accomplished, too superior in most respects to the best of those by whom she is surrounded, not to have her enemies and traducers, I dare say. Let it be known to them, as I make it known to you, that being of sound mind, memory, and understanding, I revoke no disposition I have made in her favour. I bridge nothing. I have ever bestowed upon her. I am on unaltered terms with her, and I recall having the full power to do it if I were so disposed as you see. No act I have done for her advantage and happiness. His formal array of words might have at any other time, as it has often had, something ludicrous in it, but at this time it is serious and affecting. His noble earnestness, his fidelity, his gallant shielding of her, his generous conquest of his own wrong and his own pride for her sake, are simply honourable, manly, and true. Nothing less worthy can be seen through the lustre of such qualities in the commonest mechanic. Nothing less worthy can be seen in the best-born gentleman. In such a light both aspire alike, both wise alike, both children of the dust shine equally. Overpowered by his exertions, he lays his head back on his pillows, and closes his eyes for not more than a minute, when he again resumes his watching of the weather, and his attention to the muffled sounds. In the rendering of those little services, and in the manner of their acceptance, the trooper has become installed as necessary to him. Nothing has been said, but it is quite understood. 
He falls a step or two backward to be out of sight, and mounts guard a little behind his mother's chair. The day is now beginning to decline. The mist and the sleet, into which the snow has all resolved itself, are darker, and the blaze begins to tell more vividly upon the room walls and furniture. The gloom augments. The bright gas springs up in the streets, and the pertinacious oil-lamps, which yet hold their ground there, with their source of life half-frozen and half-thawed, twinkle gaspingly like fiery fish out of water, as they are. The world, which has been rumbling over the straw and pulling at the bell, to inquire, begins to go home, begins to dress, to dine, to discuss its dear friend with all the last new modes, as already mentioned. Now does Sir Leicester become worse, restless, uneasy, and in great pain. Volumnia, lighting a candle, with a predestined aptitude for doing something objectionable, is bidden to put it out again, for it is not yet dark enough. Yet it is very dark, too, as dark as it will be all night. By and by she tries again. No, put it out. It is not dark enough yet. His old housekeeper is the first to understand that he is striving to uphold the fiction within himself that it is not growing late. "'Dear Celeste, my honoured master,' she softly whispers, "'I must, for your own good and my duty, take the freedom of begging and praying that you will not lie here in the lone darkness, watching and waiting and dragging through the time.' Let me draw the curtains, and light the candles, and make things more comfortable about you. The church clocks will strike the hours just the same, Sir Leicester, and the night will pass away just the same. My lady will come back just the same. I know it, Mrs. Ronswell, but I am weak and he has been so long gone. Not so very long, Sir Leicester, not twenty-four hours yet. But that is a long time. Oh, it is a long time. He says it with a groan that wrings her heart. She knows that this is not a period for bringing the rough light upon him. She thinks his tears too sacred to be seen, even by her. Therefore she sits in the darkness for a while without a word, and gently begins to move about, now stirring the fire, now standing at the dark window looking out. Finally he tells her, with recovered self-command, "'As you say, Mrs. Rouncewell, it is no worse for being confessed. It is getting late, and they are not come. Light the room. When it is lighted, and the weather shut out, it is only left to him to listen. But they find that however dejected and ill he is, he brightens when a quiet pretense is made of looking at the fires in her rooms, and being sure that everything is ready to receive her. Poor pretense as it is, these allusions to her being expected keep up hope within him. Midnight comes, and with it the same blank, 
the carriages in the streets are few, and other late sounds in that neighbourhood there are none, unless a man so very nomadically drunk as to stray into the frigid zone goes brawling and bellowing along the pavement. Upon this wintry night it is so still that listening to the intense silence is like looking at intense darkness. If any distant sound be audible in this case, it departs through the gloom like a feeble light in that, and all is heavier than before. The corporation of servants are dismissed to bed, not unwilling to go, for they were up all last night, and only Mrs. Rouncewell and George keep watch in Sir Leicester's room. As the night lags tardily on, or rather when it seems to stop altogether, at between two and three o'clock, they find a restless craving on him to know more about the weather, and now he cannot see it. Hence George, patrolling regularly every half-hour to the rooms so carefully looked after, extends his march to the hall door, looks about him, and brings back the best report he can make of the worst of nights, the sleet still falling, and even the stone footways lying ankle-deep in icy sludge. Volumnia, in her room, up a retired landing on the staircase, the second turning past the end of the carving and gilding, a cousinly room, containing a fearful abortion of a portrait of Sir Leicester, banished for its crimes, and commanding in the day a solemn yard planted with dried-up shrubs, like antediluvian specimens of black tea, is a prey to horrors of many kinds. Not last, nor least among them, possibly, is a horror of what may befall her little income in the event, as she expresses it, of anything happening to Sir Leicester. Anything in this sense meaning one thing only— and that the last thing that can happen to the consciousness of any baronet in the known world. An effect of these horrors is that Volumnia finds she cannot go to bed in her own room, or sit by the fire in her own room, but must come forth with her fair head tied up in a profusion of shawl, and her fair form enrobed in drapery, and parade the mansion like a ghost, particularly haunting the rooms, warm and luxurious, prepared for one who still does not return. Solitude under such circumstances being not to be thought of, Volumnia is attended by her maid, who, impressed from her own bed for that purpose, extremely cold, very sleepy, and generally an injured maid as condemned by circumstances to take office with a cousin, when she had resolved to be maid, to nothing less than ten thousand a year, has not a sweet expression of countenance. The periodical visits of the trooper to these rooms, however, in the course of his patrolling, is an assurance of protection and company both to mistress and maid, which renders them very acceptable in the small hours of the night. Whenever he is heard advancing, they both make some little decorative preparation to receive him. At other times they divide their watches into short scraps of oblivion and dialogues, not wholly free from acerbity, as to whether Miss Dedlock, sitting with her feet upon the fender, was or was not falling into the fire when rescued, to her great displeasure, by her guardian genius, the maid. "'How is Sir Leicester now, Mr. George?' inquires Volumnia, adjusting her cowl over her head. "'Why, Sir Leicester's much the same, miss. He's very low and ill, and he even wanders a little sometimes.' "'Has he asked for me?' inquires Volumnia tenderly. Uh, "'Why, no, I can't say yes, miss. Not within my hearing, that is to say.' "'This is a truly sad time, Mr. George.' "'It is indeed, miss. Hadn't you better go to bed?' "'You had a deal better go to bed, Miss Dedlock,' 
quoth the maid sharply. But Volumnia answers, No, no, she may be asked for, she may be wanted at a moment's notice, she never could forgive herself if anything was to happen, and she was not on the spot. She declines to enter on the question, mooted by the maid, how the spot comes to be there, and not in her room, which is nearer to Sir Leicester's, but staunchly declares that on the spot she will remain. Volumnia, further, makes a merit of not having closed an eye, as if she had twenty or thirty, though it is hard to reconcile this statement with her having most indisputably opened two within five minutes. But when it comes to four o'clock, and still the same blank, Volumnia's constancy begins to fail her, or rather it begins to strengthen, for she now considers that it is her duty to be ready for the morrow, when much may be expected of her that, in fact, howsoever anxious to remain upon the spot, it may be required of her, as an act of self-devotion, to desert the spot. So when the trooper reappears with his, "'Hadn't you better go to bed, miss?' and when the maid protests more sharply than before, "'You had a deal better go to bed, Miss Dedlock,' she meekly rises and says, "'Do with me what you think best.' Mr. George undoubtedly thinks it best to escort her on his arm to the door of her cousinly chamber, and the maid as undoubtedly thinks it best to hustle her into bed with mighty little ceremony. Accordingly these steps are taken, and now the trooper in his rounds has the house to himself. There is no improvement in the weather. From the portico, from the eaves, from the parapet, from every ledge and post and pillar drips the thawed snow. It has crept, as if for shelter, into the lintels of the great door, under it, into the corners of the windows, into every chink and crevice of retreat, and there wastes and dies. It is falling still, upon the roof, upon the skylight, even through the skylight, and drip, 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 with the regularity of the ghost's walk, on the stone floor below. The trooper, his old recollections awakened by the solitary grandeur of a great house, no novelty to him once at Chesney Wold, goes up the stairs and through the chief rooms, holding up his light at arm's length. Thinking of his varied fortunes within the last few weeks, and of his rustic boyhood, and of the two periods of his life so strangely brought together across the wide intermediate space, thinking of the murdered man whose image is fresh in his mind, thinking of the lady who has disappeared from these very rooms, and the tokens of whose recent presence are all here, thinking of the master of the house upstairs, and of the foreboding, who will tell him. He looks here, and looks there, and reflects how he might see something now, which it would tax his boldness to walk up to, lay his hand upon, and prove to be a fancy. But it is all blank, blank as the darkness above and below, while he goes up the great staircase again, blank as the oppressive silence. All is still in readiness, George Rouncewell. Quite orderly and right, Sir Leicester. No word of any kind? The trooper shakes his head. No letter that can possibly have been overlooked. But he knows there is no such hope as that, and lays his head down without looking for an answer. Very familiar to him, as he said himself some hours ago, George Rouncewell lifts him into easier positions through the long remainder of the blank, wintry night, 
and equally familiar with his unexpressed wish, extinguishes the light, and undraws the curtains, at the first late break of day. The day comes like a phantom. Cold, colourless, and vague, it sends a warning streak before it, of a death-like hue, as if it cried out, Look what I am bringing you who watch there. Who will tell him? End of chapter 58「Bleak House by Charles Dickens」Chapter 59 Esther's Narrative It was three o'clock in the morning when the houses outside London did at last begin to exclude the country, and to close us in with streets. We had made our way along roads in far worse condition than when we had traversed them by daylight, both the fall and the thaw having lasted ever since. But the energy of my companion never slackened. It had only been, as I thought, of less assistance than the horses in getting us on, and it had often aided them. They had stopped exhausted half-way up hills. They had been driven through streams of turbulent water. They had slipped down and become entangled with the harness. But he and his little lantern had been always ready, and when the mishap was set right, I never heard any variation in his cool, "'Get on, my lads!' The steadiness and confidence with which he had directed our journey back I could not account for. Never wavering, he never even stopped to make an inquiry until we were within a few miles of London.' A very few words, here and there, were then enough for him, and thus we came, at between three and four o'clock in the morning, into Islington. I will not dwell on the suspense and anxiety with which I reflected all this time that we were leaving my mother farther and farther behind every minute. I think I had some strong hope that he must be right, and could not fail to have a satisfactory object in following this woman but I tormented myself with questioning it, and discussing it, during the whole journey. What was to ensue when we found her, and what could compensate us for this loss of time, were questions also that I could not possibly dismiss. My mind was quite tortured by long dwelling on such reflections, when we stopped. We stopped in a high street, where there was a coach-stand, my companion paid our two drivers, who were as completely covered with splashes as if they had been dragged along the roads like the carriage itself, and giving them some brief direction where to take it, lifted me out of it and into a hackney-coach he had chosen from the rest. "'Why, my dear,' he said as he did this, "'how wet you are!' I had not been conscious of it, but the melted snow had found its way into the carriage and I had got out two or three times when a fallen horse was plunging and had to be got up, and the wet had penetrated my dress. I assured him it was no matter, but the driver, who knew him, would not be dissuaded by me from running down the street to his stable, whence he brought an armful of clean dry straw. They shook it out, and strewed it well about me, and I found it warm and comfortable. "'Now, my dear,' said Mr. Bucket, with his head in at the window after I was shut up. 
"'We are going to mark this person down. "'It may take a little time, but you don't mind that. "'You're pretty sure that I've got a motive, ain't you?' "'I little thought what it was, "'little thought in how short a time I should understand it better, "'but I assured him that I had confidence in him.' "'So you may have, my dear,' he returned. "'And I tell you what, if you only repose half as much confidence in me as I repose in you after what I've experienced of you, that'll do. Lord, you're no trouble at all. I never see a young woman in any station of society, and I've seen many elevated ones too, conduct herself like you have conducted yourself since you was out of your bed.' "'You're a pattern, you know. That's what you are,' said Mr. Bucket warmly. "'You're a pattern.' I told him I was very glad, as indeed I was, to have been no hindrance to him, and that I hoped I should be none now. "'My dear,' he returned, "'when a young lady is as mild as she's game, and as game as she's mild, that's all I ask.' and more than I expect. She then becomes a queen, and that's about what you are yourself." With these encouraging words, they really were encouraging to me under those lonely and anxious circumstances, he got upon the box, and we once more drove away. Where we drove I neither knew then nor have ever known since, but we appeared to seek out the narrowest and worst streets in London. Whenever I saw him directing the driver, I was prepared for our descending into a deeper complication of such streets, and we never failed to do so. Sometimes we emerged upon a wider thoroughfare, or came to a larger building than the generality, well lighted. Then we stopped at offices, like those we had visited when we began our journey, and I saw him in consultation with others. Sometimes he would get down by an archway, or at a street corner, and mysteriously show the light of his little lantern. This would attract similar lights from various dark quarters, like so many insects, and a fresh consultation would be held. By degrees we appeared to contract our search within narrower and easier limits. Single police officers on duty could now tell Mr. Bucket what he wanted to know, and point to him where to go. At last we stopped for a rather long conversation between him and one of these men, which I supposed to be satisfactory from his manner of nodding from time to time. When it was finished, he came to me, looking very busy and very attentive. "'Now, Miss Summerson,' he said to me, "'you won't be alarmed, whatever comes off, I know. It's not necessary for me to give you any further caution, and to tell you that we have marked this person down.' and that you may be of use to me before I know it myself. I don't like to ask such a thing, my dear, but would you walk a little way?" Of course I got out directly and took his arm. "'It ain't so easy to keep your feet,' said Mr. Bucket, but take time." Although I looked about me confusedly and hurriedly as we crossed the street, I thought I knew the place. "'Are we in Hoban?' I asked him. "'Yes,' said Mr. Bucket. "'Do you know this turning?' "'It looks like Chancery Lane.' "'And was christened so, my dear,' said Mr. Bucket. We turned down it, and as we went shuffling through the sleet, I heard the clocks strike half-past five. 
we passed on in silence, and as quickly as we could, with such a foothold, when some one coming towards us on the narrow pavement, wrapped in a cloak, stopped and stood aside to give me room. In the same moment I heard an exclamation of wonder, and my own name from Mr. Woodcourt. I knew his voice very well. It was so unexpected, and, and so— I don't know what to call it, whether pleasant or painful, to come upon it after my feverish wandering journey, and in the midst of the night, that I could not keep back the tears from my eyes. It was like hearing his voice in a strange country. "'My dear Miss Allison, that you should be out at this hour, and in such weather?' He had heard from my guardian of my having been called away on some uncommon business, and said so to dispense with any explanation. I told him that we had but just left a coach, and were going, but then I was obliged to look at my companion. "'Why, you see, Mr. Woodcourt,' he had caught the name from me, "'we are a-going at present into the next street. Inspector Bookett.' Mr. Woodcourt, disregarding my remonstrances, had hurriedly taken off his cloak, and was putting it about me. "'That's a good move, too,' said Mr. Bucket, assisting. "'A very good move.' "'May I go with you?' said Mr. Woodcourt. "'I don't know whether to me or to my companion.' "'Why, Lord!' exclaimed Mr. Bucket, taking the answer on himself. "'Of course you may.' It was all said in a moment, and they took me between them, wrapped in the cloak. "'I have just left Richard,' said Mr. Woodcourt. "'I have been sitting with him since ten o'clock last night.' "'Oh, dear me! He is ill?' "'No, no, believe me, not ill, but not quite well. He was depressed and faint.' "'You know, he gets so worried and so worn sometimes, and Ada sent to me, of course. And when I came home, I found her note and came straight here. Well, Richard revived so much after a little while, and Ada was so happy and so convinced of its being my doing, though God knows I had little enough to do with it, that I remained with him until he had been fast asleep some hours, as fast asleep as she is now, I hope." His friendly and familiar way of speaking of them, his unaffected devotion to them, the grateful confidence with which I knew he had inspired my darling, and the comfort he was to her, could I separate all this from his promise to me? How thankless I must have been, if it had not recalled the words he said to me when he was so moved by the change in my appearance. I will accept him as a trust, and it shall be a sacred one. We now turned into another narrow street. Mr. Woodcourt, said Mr. Bucket, who had eyed him closely as we came along. "'Our business takes us to a law stationer's here, a certain Mr. Snagsby. What? You know him, do you?' He was so quick that he saw it in an instant. "'Yes, I know a little of him, and have called upon him at this place.' "'Indeed, sir,' said Mr. Bucket. "'Then you will be so good as to let me leave Miss Summerson with you for a moment.' while I go and have half a word with him." The last police officer, with whom he had conferred, was standing silently behind us. I was not aware of it until he struck in on my saying I heard someone crying. 
"'Don't be alarmed, miss,' he cried. "'It's Snagsby's servant.' "'Why, you see,' said Mr. Bucket, "'the girl's subject to fits, and has em bad upon her to-night. A most contrary circumstance it is, for I want certain information out of that girl, and she must be brought to reason somehow. At all events, they wouldn't be up yet if it wasn't for her, Mr. Bucket,' said the other man. "'She's been at it pretty well all night, sir.' "'Well, that's true,' he returned. "'My light's burnt out. Show yours a minute.' All this passed in a whisper a door or two from the house in which I could faintly hear crying and moaning. In the little round of light produced for the purpose, Mr. Bucket went up to the door and knocked. The door was opened after he had knocked twice, and he went in, leaving us standing in the street. "'Miss Summerson,' said Mr. Woodcourt, "'if, without obtruding myself on your confidence, I may remain near you, pray let me do so you are truly kind i answered i need wish to keep no secret of my own from you if i keep any it is another's i quite understand trust me i will remain near you only so long as i can fully respect it i trust implicitly to you i said i know and deeply feel how sacredly you keep your promise after a short time the little round of light shone out again and mr bucket advanced towards us in it with his earnest face please to come in miss summerson he said and sit down by the fire mr woodcourt from information i have received i understand you are a medical man would you look to this girl and see if anything can be done to bring her round she has a letter somewhere that i particularly want it's not in her box, and I think it must be about her. But she's so twisted and clenched up that she is difficult to handle without hurting. We all three went into the house together. Although it was cold and raw, it smelt close, too, from being up all night. In the passage behind the door stood a scared, sorrowful-looking little man in a grey coat, who seemed to have a naturally polite manner, and spoke meekly. <laughs> "'Downstairs, if you please, Mr. Bucket,' said he. <clears throat> "'The lady will excuse the front kitchen. "'We use it as our work at my sitting-room. "'The back is Guster's bedroom, "'and in it she's a-carrying on, poor thing, to a frightful extent.' "'We went downstairs, followed by Mr. Snagsby, "'as I soon found the little man to be.' In the front kitchen, sitting by the fire, was Mrs. Snagsby, with very red eyes and a very severe expression of face. "'My little woman,' said Mr. Snagsby, entering behind us, "'to <coughs> wave, not to put too fine a point upon it, my dear, hostilities for one single moment in the course of this prolonged night, here is Inspector Bucket.' "'Mr. Woodcourt, and a lady.' "'She looked very much astonished, as she had reason for doing, "'and looked particularly hard at me. "'My little woman,' said Mr. Snagsby, "'sitting down in the remotest corner by the door, "'as if he were taking a liberty, 
it is not unlikely that you may inquire of me why inspector bucket mr woodcourt and a lady call upon us in cook's court cursitor street at the present hour i don't know i have not the least idea if i was to be informed i should despair of understanding and i'd rather not be told he appeared so miserable sitting with his head upon his hand and i appeared so unwelcome that i was going to offer an apology when mr bucket took the matter on himself now mr snagsby said he the best thing you can do is to go along with mr woodcourt to look after your guster <coughs> my guster mr bucket cried mr snagsby go on sir go on i shall be charged with that next and to hold the candle pursued mr bucket without correcting himself or hold her or make yourself useful in any way you're asked which there's not a man alive more ready to do for you're a man of urbanity and suavity you know and you've got the sort of art that can feel for another mr woodcourt would you be so good as to see to her and if you can get that letter from her to let me have it as soon as ever you can as he went out mr bucket made me sit down in a corner by the fire and take off my wet shoes which he turned up to dry upon the fender talking all the time don't you be at all put out miss by the want of a hospitable look from mrs snagsby there because she's under a mistake altogether she'll find that out sooner than will be agreeable to a lady of a generally correct manner of forming her thoughts because i'm a-going to explain it to her here standing on the hearth with his wet hat and shawls in his hand himself a pile of wet he turned to mrs snagsby now the first thing that i say to you as a married woman possessing what you may call charms you know believe me if all those endearing and cetera you're well acquainted with the song because it's in vain for you to tell me that you and good society are strangers charms attractions mind you that ought to give you confidence in yourself is that you've done it mrs snagsby looked rather alarmed relented a little and faltered what did mr bucket mean what does mr bucket mean he repeated, and I saw by his face that all the time he talked, he was listening for the discovery of the letter, to my own great agitation, for I knew then how important it must be. "'I'll tell you what he means, ma'am. Go and see Othello acted. That's the tragedy for you.' Mrs. Snagsby consciously asked why. "'Why?' said Mr. Bucket. "'Because you'll come to that.' if you don't look out. Why, at the very moment while I speak, I know what your mind's not wholly free from respecting this young lady. But shall I tell you who this young lady is? Now, come, you're what I call an intellectual woman, with your soul too large for your body, if you come to that, and chafe in it. And you know me, and you recollect where you saw me last, and what was talked of in that circle, don't you? Yes. Very well. This young lady is that young lady. Mrs. Snagsby appeared to understand the reference better than I did at the time. And Tuffy, 
him as you call Joe, was mixed up in the same business, and no other. And the law-writer that you know of was mixed up in the same business, and no other. And your husband, with no more knowledge of it than your great-grandfather, was mixed up by Mr. Tulkinhorn, deceased, his best customer, in the same business, and no other. And the old biling of people was mixed up in the same business, and no other. And yet, a married woman, possessing your attractions, shuts her eyes, and sparklers too, and goes and runs her delicate formed head against a wall. Why, I'm ashamed of you. I expected Mr. Woodcourt might have got it by this time. Mrs. Snagsby shook her head, and put her handkerchief to her eyes. "'Is that all?' said Mr. Bucket excitedly. "'No. See what happens. Another person mixed up in that business, and no other. A person in a wretched state comes here to-night, and is seen a speaking to your maidservant, and between her and your maidservant there passes a paper that I would give a hundred pound for down.' What do you do? You hide, and you watch em, and you pounce upon that maidservant, knowing what she's subject to, and what a little thing will bring em on. In that surprising manner, and with that severity, that, by the Lord, she goes off and keeps off, when a life may be hanging upon that girl's words. He so thoroughly meant what he said now, that I involuntarily clasped my hands, and felt the room turning away from me. But it stopped. Mr. Woodcourt came in, put a paper into his hand, and went away again. "'Now, Mrs. Snagsby, the only amends you can make,' said Mr. Bucket, rapidly glancing at it, "'is to let me speak a word to this young lady in private here. And if you know of any help that you can give to that gentleman in the next kitchen there, or can think of any one thing that's likelier than another to bring the girl round, do your swiftest and best.' In an instant she was gone, and he had shut the door. "'Now, my dear, you're steady, and quite sure of yourself?' "'Quite,' said I. "'Whose writing is that?' "'It was my mother's. A pencil writing, on a crushed and torn piece of paper, blotted with wet, folded roughly like a letter, and directed to me at my guardian's. "'You know the hand,' he said. "'And if you're firm enough to read it to me, do. "'But be particular to a word.' "'It had been written in portions, at different times. "'I read what follows. "'I came to the cottage with two objects. First, to see the dear one, if I could, once more, "'but only to see her, not to speak to her, "'or let her know that I was near.' the other object to elude pursuit and to be lost. Do not blame the mother for her share. The assistance that she rendered me, she rendered on my strongest assurance that it was for the dear one's good. You remember her dead child? The men's consent I bought, but her help was freely given. I came, that was written, said my companion, when she rested there. "'It bears out what I made of it. I was right.' "'The next was written at another time. "'I have wandered a long distance, and for many hours, 
and I know that I must soon die. These streets, I have no purpose but to die. When I left, I had a worse, but I am saved from adding that guilt to the rest. Cold, wet, and fatigue are sufficient causes for my being found dead, but I shall die of others, though I suffer from these. It was right that all that had sustained me should give way at once, and that I should die of terror and my conscience. "'Take courage,' said Mr. Bucket. "'There's only a few words more.' Those two were written at another time, to all appearance, almost in the dark. "'I have done all I could do to be lost. I shall be soon forgotten so, and shall disgrace him least. I have nothing about me by which I can be recognised. This paper I part with now. The place where I shall lie down, if I can get so far, has been often in my mind. Farewell. Forgive. Mr. Bucket, supporting me with his arm, lowered me gently into my chair. Cheer up. Don't think me hard with you, my dear, but as soon as ever you feel equal to it, get your shoes on and be ready. I did as he required, but I was left there a long time, praying for my unhappy mother. They were all occupied with the poor girl, and I heard Mr. Woodcourt directing them and speaking to her often. At length he came in with Mr. Bucket, and said that, as it was important to address her gently, he thought it best that I should ask her for whatever information we desired to obtain. There was no doubt that she could now reply to questions, if she were soothed and not alarmed. The questions, Mr. Bucket said, were how she came by the letter, what passed between her and the person who gave her the letter, and where the person went. Holding my mind as steadily as I could to these points, I went into the next room with them. Mr. Woodcourt would have remained outside, but at my solicitation went in with us. The poor girl was sitting on the floor where they had laid her down. They stood around her, though at a little distance, that she might have air. She was not pretty, and looked weak and poor, but she had a plaintive and a good face, though it was still a little wild. I kneeled on the ground beside her, and put her poor head upon my shoulder, whereupon she drew her arm round my neck, and burst into tears. "'My poor girl,' said I, laying my face against her forehead, for indeed I was crying too, and trembling. It seems cruel to trouble you now, but more depends on our knowing something about this letter than I could tell you in an hour. She began piteously declaring that she didn't mean any harm, she didn't mean any harm, Mrs. Snagsby. We are all sure of that, said I, but pray tell me how you got it. "'Yes, dear lady, I will. i tell you true. "'I'll tell true, indeed, Mrs. Snagsby.' "'I'm sure of that,' said I. "'And how was it?' "'I had been out on an errand, dear lady, long after it was dark, quite late. "'And when I came home, I found a common-looking person, all wet and muddy, looking up at our house.' When she saw me coming in at the door, she called me back 
and said, did I live here? And I said, yes. And she said she knew only one or two places about here, but had lost her way and couldn't find him. Oh, what shall I do? What shall I do? They won't believe me. She didn't say any harm to me. I didn't say any harm to her. Indeed, Mrs. Snagsby. It was necessary for her mistress to comfort her, which she did, I must say, with a good deal of contrition, before she could be got beyond this. "'She could not find those places,' said I. "'No!' cried the girl, shaking her head. "'No! Couldn't find them! And she was so faint and lame and miserable! Oh, so wretched! That if you'd seen her, Mr. Snagsby, you'd have given her half a crown, I know!' "'Well, Gusta, my girl,' said he, at first not knowing what to say, "'I uh, hope I should.' "'And yet she was so well-spoken,' said the girl, looking at me with wide-open eyes, "'that he made a person's heart bleed. "'And so she said to me, "'Did I know the way to the burying-ground?' "'And I asked her, "'Which burying-ground?' "'And she said, "'The poor burying ground. And so I told her I had been a poor child myself, and it was according to parishes. But she said she meant a poor burying ground not very far from here, where there was an archway, and a step, and an iron gate. As I watched her face, and soothed her to go on, I saw that Mr. Bucket received this with a look which I could not separate from one of alarm. "'Oh, dear, dear!' cried the girl, pressing her hair back with her hands. "'What shall I do? What shall I do? She meant the burying-ground, where the man was buried, that took the sleeping stuff, that you came home and told us of, Mr. Snagsby. That frightened me so, Mrs. Snagsby. Oh, I am frightened again. Hold me.' "'You are so much better now,' said I. "'Pray, pray, tell me more.' "'Yes, I will, yes, I will, but don't be angry with me, as a dear lady, because I've been so ill.' "'Angry with her? Poor soul! There, now I will, now I will.' So she said, "'Could I tell her how to find it?' And I said, "'Yes,' and I told her, and she looked at me with eyes like almost as if she was blind.' and herself all waving back and so she took out the letter and showed it me and said if she was to put that in the post office it would be rubbed out and not minded and never sent and would i take it from her and send it and the messenger would be paid at the house and so i said yes if it was no harm and she said no no harm and so i took it from her and she said she had nothing to give me and i said i was poor myself and consequently wanted nothing. And so she said, God bless you, and went. And did she go? Yes, cried the girl, anticipating the inquiry. Yes, she went the way I'd shown her. Then I came in, and Mrs. Snagsby came behind me from somewhere, and laid hold of me, and I was frightened. Mr. Woodcourt took her kindly from me. Mr. Bucket wrapped me up, and immediately we were in the street. Mr. Woodcourt hesitated, but I said, "'Don't leave me now.' And Mr. Bucket added, "'You'll be better with us. We may want you. 
don't lose time. I have the most confused impressions of that walk. I recollect that it was neither night nor day, that morning was dawning, but the street lamps were not yet put out, that the sleet was still falling, and that all the ways were deep with it. I recollect a few chilled people passing in the streets. I recollect the wet housetops, the clogged and bursting gutters and water-spouts, the mounds of blackened ice and snow over which we passed, the narrowness of the courts by which we went. At the same time, I remember that the poor girl seemed to be yet telling her story audibly and plainly in my hearing, that I could feel her resting on my arm, that the stained house-fronts put on human shapes and looked at me, that great water-gates seemed to be opening and closing in my head or in the air, and that the unreal things were more substantial than the real. At last we stood under a dark and miserable covered way, where one lamp was burning over an iron gate, and where the morning faintly struggled in. The gate was closed. Beyond it was a burial-ground, a dreadful spot, in which the night was very slowly stirring, but where I could dimly see heaps of dishonoured graves and stones, hemmed in by filthy houses, with a few dull lights in their windows, and on whose walls a thick humidity broke out like a disease. On the step at the gate, drenched in the fearful wet of such a place, which oozed and splashed down everywhere, I saw, with a cry of pity and horror, a woman lying, Jenny, the mother of the dead child. I ran forward, but they stopped me, and Mr. Woodcourt entreated me, with the greatest earnestness, even with tears, before I went up to the figure, to listen for an instant to what Mr. Bucket said. I, I did so, as I thought. I did so, as I am sure. Miss Summerson, you'll understand me, if you think a moment. They changed clothes at the cottage. They changed clothes at the cottage. I could repeat the words in my mind, and I knew what they meant of themselves, but I attached no meaning to them in any other connection. And one returned, said Mr. Bucket, and one went on. And the one that went on only went on a certain way agreed upon to deceive, and then turned across country and went home. Think a moment. I could repeat this in my mind, too, but I had not the least idea what it meant. I saw before me, lying on the step, the mother of the dead child. She lay there with one arm creeping round a bar of the iron gate, and seeming to embrace it. She lay there, who had so lately spoken to my mother. She lay there, a distressed, unsheltered, senseless creature. She who had brought my mother's letter, who could give me the only clue to where my mother was. She, who was to guide us to rescue and save her, whom we had sought so far, who had come to this condition, by some means connected with my mother, that I could not follow, and might be passing beyond our reach and help at that moment. She lay there, and they stopped me. I saw, but did not comprehend, the solemn and compassionate look in Mr. Woodcourt's face. I saw, but did not comprehend his touching the other on the breast, to keep him back. I saw him stand uncovered in the bitter air, with a reverence for something, but my understanding for all this was gone. 
I even heard it said between them, shall she go? She had better go. Her hands should be the first to touch her. They have a higher right than ours. I passed on to the gate, and stooped down. I lifted the heavy head, put the long, dank hair aside, and turned the face. And it was my mother, cold and dead. End of chapter 59「Chapter sixty Perspective I proceed to other passages of my narrative. From the goodness of all about me I derived such consolation as I can never think of unmoved. I have already said so much of myself and so much still remains, that I will not dwell upon my sorrow. I had an illness, but it was not a long one, and I would avoid even this mention of it if I could quite keep down the recollection of their sympathy. I proceed to other passages of my narrative. During the time of my illness we were still in London, where Mrs. Woodcourt had come, on my guardian's invitation, to stay with us. When my guardian thought me well, and cheerful enough to talk with him in our old way, though I could have done that sooner if he would have believed me, I resumed my work and my chair beside his. He had appointed the time himself, and we were alone. "'Dame Trot,' said he, receiving me with a kiss, "'welcome to the growlery again, my dear. I have a scheme to develop, little woman.' I propose to remain here, perhaps for six months, perhaps for a longer time, as it may be, quite to settle here for a while, in short. "'And in the meanwhile leave Bleak House?' said I. "'Aye, aye, my dear Bleak House,' he returned, "'must learn to take care of itself.' I thought his tone sounded sorrowful, but looking at him, I saw his kind face lighted up by its pleasantest smile. "'Bleak house,' he repeated, and his tone did not sound sorrowful, I found. "'Must learn to take care of itself. It is a long way from Ada, my dear, and Ada stands much in need of you.' "'It's like you, guardian,' said I, to have been taking that into consideration for a happy surprise to both of us. "'Not so disinterested either, my dear, if you mean to extol me for that virtue, since if you were generally on the road you could be seldom with me. And besides, I wish to hear as much and as often of Ada as I can in this condition of estrangement from poor Rick. Not of her alone, but of him too, poor fellow.' "'Have you seen Mr. Woodcourt this morning, guardian?' "'I see Mr. Woodcourt every morning, Dame Durden.' "'Does he still say the same of Richard?' "'Just the same. He knows of no direct bodily illness that he has. On the contrary, he believes that he has none. Yet he is not easy about him. Who can be?' "'My dear girl had been to see us lately every day, sometimes twice in a day. 
but we had foreseen all along that this would only last until I was quite myself. We knew full well that her fervent heart was as full of affection and gratitude towards her cousin John as it had ever been, and we acquitted Richard of laying any injunctions upon her to stay away, but we knew on the other hand that she felt it a part of her duty to him to be sparing of her visits at our house. My guardian's delicacy had soon perceived this, and had tried to convey to her that he thought she was right. "'Dear, unfortunate, mistaken Richard,' said I, "'when will he awake from this delusion?' "'He is not in the way to do so now, my dear,' replied my guardian. "'The more he suffers, the more averse he will be to me.' having made me the principal representative of the great occasion of his suffering. I could not help adding, so unreasonably. Ah, Dame Trot, Dame Trot, returned my guardian, what shall we find reasonable in Jarndyce and Jarndyce? Unreason and injustice at the top, unreason and injustice at the heart and at the bottom— unreason and injustice from beginning to end, if it ever has an end. How should poor Rick, always hovering near it, pluck reason out of it? He no more gathers grapes from thorns or figs, from thistles, than older men did in old times. His gentleness and consideration for Richard, whenever he spoke of him, touched me so that I was always silent on this subject very soon. "'I suppose the Lord Chancellor and the Vice-Chancellors and the whole Chancery battery of great guns would be infinitely astonished by such unreason and injustice in one of their suitors,' pursued my guardian, "'when those learned gentlemen begin to raise moss-roses from the powder they sow in their wigs, I shall begin to be astonished too.' He checked himself in glancing towards the window to look where the wind was, and leaned on the back of my chair instead. "'Well, well, little woman, to go on, my dear. This rock we must leave to time, chance, and hopeful circumstances. We must not shipwreck Ada upon it. She cannot afford, and he cannot afford, the remotest chance of another separation from a friend.' Therefore I have particularly begged of Woodcourt, and I now particularly beg of you, my dear, not to move this subject with Rick. Let it rest. Next week, next month, next year, sooner or later, he will see me with clearer eyes. I can wait. But I had already discussed it with him, I confessed, and so I thought had Mr. Woodcourt. So he tells me, returned my guardian. "'Very good. He has made his protest, and Dame Durden has made hers, and there is nothing more to be said about it. Now I come to Mrs. Woodcourt. How do you like her, my dear?' In answer to this question, which was oddly abrupt, I said I liked her very much, and thought she was more agreeable than she used to be. "'I think so, too,' said my guardian. "'Less pedigree.' "'Not so much of Morgan App—what's uh, his name?' "'That was what I meant, I acknowledged, "'though he was a very harmless person, "'even when we had had more of him.' "'Still, upon the whole, he is as well in his native mountains,' "'said my guardian. "'I agree with you. 
"'Then, little woman, can I do better for a time than retain Mrs. Woodcourt here?' "'No, and yet—' My guardian looked at me, waiting for what I had to say. I had nothing to say. At least I had nothing in my mind that I could say. I had an undefined impression that it might have been better if we had had some other inmate, but I could hardly have explained why, even to myself—' or, if to myself, certainly not to anybody else. "'You see,' said my guardian, "'our neighbourhood is in Woodcourt's way, and he could come here to see her as often as he likes, which is agreeable to them both, and she is familiar to us, and fond of you.' "'Yes, that was undeniable. I had nothing to say against it. I could not have suggested a better arrangement, but I was not quite easy in my mind.' "'Esther, Esther, why not? Esther, think. "'It is a very good plan indeed, dear guardian, and we could not do better.' "'Sure, little woman?' "'Quite sure. "'I had had a moment's time to think, since I had urged that duty on myself, and I was quite sure.' "'Good,' said my guardian. "'It shall be done. Carried unanimously.' "'Carried unanimously,' I repeated, going on with my work. It was a cover for his book-table that I happened to be ornamenting. It had been laid by on the night preceding my sad journey, and never resumed. I showed it to him now, and he admired it highly. After I had explained the pattern to him, and all the great effects that were to come out by and by, I thought I would go back to our last theme.' "'You said, dear guardian, when we spoke of Mr. Woodcourt, before Ada left us, that you thought he would give a long trial to another country. Have you been advising him since?' "'Yes, little woman, pretty often.' "'Has he decided to do so?' "'I rather think not.' "'Some other prospect is open to him, perhaps,' said I. "'Why, yes, perhaps,' returned my guardian, beginning his answer in a very deliberate manner. "'About half a year hence or so, there is a medical attendant for the poor, to be appointed at a certain place in Yorkshire. It is a thriving place, pleasantly situated, streams and streets, town and country, mill and moor, and seems to present an opening for such a man. I mean a man whose hopes and aims may sometimes lie, as most men's sometimes do, I dare say, above the ordinary level, but to whom the ordinary level will be high enough. After all, if it should prove to be a way of usefulness and good service, leading to no other. All generous spirits are ambitious, I suppose, but the ambition that calmly trusts itself to such a road, instead of spasmodically trying to fly over it, is the kind I care for. It is Woodcourt's kind.' "'And will he get this appointment?' I asked. "'Why, little woman,' returned my guardian, smiling, "'not being an oracle, I cannot confidently say, but I think so. His reputation stands very high. There were people from that part of the country in the shipwreck, and, strange to say, I believe the best man has the best chance. You must not suppose it to be a fine endowment.' It is a very, very commonplace affair, my dear, 
an appointment to a great amount of work and a small amount of pay. But better things will gather about it, it may be fairly hoped. The poor of that place will have reason to bless the choice if it falls on Mr. Woodcourt, guardian. You are right, little woman. That I am sure they will. We said no more about it, nor did he say a word about the future of Bleak House. But it was the first time I had taken my seat at his side in my morning dress, and that accounted for it, I considered. I now began to visit my dear girl every day in the dull dark corner where she lived. The morning was my usual time, but whenever I found I had an hour or so to spare, I put on my bonnet and bustled off to Chancery Lane. They were both so glad to see me at all hours, and used to brighten up so when they heard me opening the door and coming in, being quite at home I never knocked, that I had no fear of becoming troublesome just yet. On these occasions I frequently found Richard absent. At other times he would be writing or reading papers in the cause at that table of his, so covered with papers, which was never disturbed. Sometimes I would come upon him lingering at the door of Mr. Vols's office. Sometimes I would meet him in the neighbourhood, lounging about and biting his nails. I often met him wandering in Lincoln's Inn, near the place where I had first seen him. Oh, how different! How different! That the money Ada brought him was melting away with the candles I used to see burning after dark in Mr. Vols's office, I knew very well. It was not a large amount in the beginning. He had married in debt, and I could not fail to understand by this time what was meant by Mr. Vols's shoulder being at the wheel, as I still heard it was. My dear made the best of housekeepers, and tried hard to save, but I knew that they were getting poorer and poorer every day. She shone in the miserable corner like a beautiful star. She adorned and graced it so that it became another place. Paler than she had been at home, and a little quieter than I had thought natural when she was yet so cheerful and hopeful, her face was so unshadowed that I half believed she was blinded by her love for Richard to his ruinous career. I went one day to dine with them while I was under this impression. As I turned into Simon's Inn, I met little Miss Flight coming out. She had been to make a stately call upon the wards in Jarndyce, as she still called them, and had derived the highest gratification from that ceremony. Ada had already told me that she called every Monday at five o'clock, with one little extra white bow in her bonnet, which never appeared there at any other time, and with her largest reticule of documents on her arm. "'My dear,' she began, "'so delighted!' "'How do you do? So glad to see you. "'And you are going to visit our interesting Jarndyce wards, to be sure. "'Our beauty is at home, my dear, and will be charmed to see you.' "'Then Richard is not come in yet,' said I. "'I am glad of that, for I was afraid of being a little late.' "'No, he is not come in,' returned Miss Flight. "'He has had a long day in court. "'I left him there with Vols.' "'You don't like Vols, I hope?' "'Don't like Vols. Dangerous man.' "'I'm afraid you see Richard oftener than ever now,' said I. "'My dearest,' returned Miss Flight, "'daily and hourly. "'You know what I told you of the attraction on the Chancellor's table? "'My dear, next to myself, he is the most constant suitor in court. "'He begins quite to amuse our little party.' "'Very friendly little party, are we not?' 
It was miserable to hear this from her poor mad lips, though it was no surprise. "'In short, my valued friend,' pursued Miss Flite, advancing her lips to my ear, with an air of equal patronage and mystery, "'I must tell you a secret. I have made him my executor, nominated, constituted, and appointed him in my will. Yes.' "'Indeed,' said I. "'Yes,' repeated Miss Flite, in her most genteel accents. "'My executor, administrator, and assign—are chancery phrases, my love—I have reflected that if I should wear out, he will be able to watch that judgment, being so very regular in his attendance.' It made me sigh to think of him. "'I did at one time mean—' said Miss Flite, echoing the sigh, to nominate, constitute, and appoint poor Gridley. Also very regular, my charming girl. I assure you, most exemplary. But he wore out, poor man. So I have appointed his successor. Don't mention it. This is in confidence. She carefully opened her reticule a little way, and showed me a folded piece of paper inside, as the appointment of which she spoke. "'Another secret, my dear, I have added to my collection of birds.' "'Really, Miss Flite,' said I, knowing how it pleased her to have her confidence received with an appearance of interest. She nodded several times, and her face became overcast and gloomy. Two more. I call them the wards and jarndice. They are caged up with all the others, with hope, joy, youth, peace, rest, life dust, ashes, waste, want, ruin, despair, madness, death, cunning, folly, words, wigs, rags, sheepskin, plunder, precedent, jargon, gammon, and spinach. The poor soul kissed me with the most troubled look I had ever seen in her, and went her way. Her manner of running over the names of her birds, as if she were afraid of hearing them even from her own lips, quite chilled me. This was not a cheering preparation for my visit and I could have dispensed with the company of Mr. Voles, when Richard, who arrived within a minute or two after me, brought him to share our dinner. Although it was a very plain one, Ada and Richard were for some minutes both out of the room, together, helping to get ready what we were to eat and drink. Mr. Voles took that opportunity of holding a little conversation in a low voice with me. He came to the window where I was sitting, and began upon Simon's Inn. "'A dull place, Miss Summerson, for a life that is not an official one,' said Mr. Voles, smearing the glass with his black glove to make it clearer for me. "'There is not much to see here,' said I. "'Nor to hear, Miss,' returned Mr. Voles. "'A little music does occasionally stray in, but we are not musical in the law, and soon eject it, I hope Mr. Jarndyce is as well as his friends could wish him.' I thanked Mr. Voles, and said he was quite well. "'I have not the pleasure to be admitted among the number of his friends myself,' said Mr. Voles, "'and I am aware that the gentlemen of our profession are sometimes regarded in such quarters with an unfavourable eye, our plain course, however, under good report and evil report, and all kinds of prejudice, we are the victims of prejudice, is to have everything openly carried on. How do you find Mr. C. looking, Miss Summerson?' "'He looks very ill, dreadfully anxious.' "'Just so,' said Mr. Voles. 
he stood behind me with his long black figure reaching nearly to the ceiling of those low rooms feeling the pimples on his face as if they were ornaments and speaking inwardly and evenly as though there were not a human passion or emotion in his nature mr woodcourt is in attendance upon mr c i believe he resumed mr woodcourt is his disinterested friend i answered but i mean in professional attendance medical attendance that can do little for an unhappy mind said i just so said mr vholes so slow so eager so bloodless and gaunt i felt as if richard were wasting away beneath the eyes of this adviser and there was something of the vampire in him miss summerson said mr vholes very slowly rubbing his gloved hands as if to his cold sense of touch they were much the same in black kid or out of it this was an ill-advised marriage of mr c's i begged he would excuse me from discussing it they had been engaged when they were both very young i told him a little indignantly and when the prospect before them was much fairer and brighter when richard had not yielded himself to the unhappy influence which now darkened his life just so assented mr vholes again still with a view to everything being openly carried on i will with your permission miss summerson observe to you that i consider this a very ill-advised marriage indeed i owe the opinion not only to mr c's connections against whom i should naturally wish to protect myself but also to my own reputation dear to myself as a professional man aiming to keep respectable dear to my three girls at home for whom i am striving to realize some little independence dear i will even say to my aged father whom it is my privilege to support it would become a very different marriage a much happier and better marriage another marriage altogether mr vholes said i if richard were persuaded to turn his back on the fatal pursuit in which you are engaged with him mr vholes with a noiseless cough or rather gasp into one of his black gloves inclined his head as if he did not wholly dispute even that miss summerson he said it may be so and i freely admit that the young lady who has taken mr c s name upon herself in so ill-advised a manner you will i am sure not quarrel with me for throwing out that remark again as a duty i owe to mr c s connections is a highly genteel young lady business has prevented me from mixing much with general society in any but a professional character still i trust i am competent to perceive that she is a highly genteel young lady as a beauty i am not a judge of that myself and i never did give much attention to it from a boy but i dare say the young lady is equally eligible in that point of view she is considered so i have heard among the clerks in the inn and it is a point more in their way than in mine in reference to mr c s pursuit of his interests oh his interests mr vholes pardon me returned mr vholes going on in exactly the same inward and dispassionate manner mr c takes certain interests under certain wills disputed in the suit it is a term we use in reference to mr c's pursuit of his interests i mentioned to you miss summerson the first time i had the pleasure of seeing you in my desire that everything should be openly carried on i used those words for i happened afterwards to note them in my diary which is producible at any time i mentioned to you that mr c had laid down the principle of watching his own interests and that when a client of mine laid down a principle which was not of an immoral that is to say unlawful nature it devolved upon me to carry it out i have carried it out i do carry 
carry it out, but I will not smooth things over to any connection of Mr. C.'s on any account. As open as I was to Mr. Jarndyce, I am to you. I regard in the light of a professional duty to be so, though it can be charged to no one. I openly say, unpalatable as it may be, that I consider Mr. C.'s affairs in a very bad way, that I consider Mr. C. himself in a very bad way, and that I regard this as an exceedingly ill-advised marriage. Am I here, sir? Yes, I thank you. I am here, Mr. C., and enjoying the pleasure of some agreeable conversation with Miss Summerson, for which I have to thank you very much, sir. He broke off thus, in answer to Richard, who addressed him as he came into the room. By this time I too well understood Mr. Vole's scrupulous way of saving himself, and his respectability, not to feel that our worst fears did but keep pace with his client's progress. We sat down to dinner, and I had an opportunity of observing Richard anxiously. I was not disturbed by Mr. Vole's, who took off his gloves to dine, though he sat opposite to me at the small table, for I doubt if, looking up at all, he once removed his eyes from his host's face. I found Richard thin and languid, slovenly in his dress, abstracted in his manner, forcing his spirits now and then, and at other intervals relapsing into a dull thoughtfulness. About his large bright eyes, that used to be so merry, there was a wanness and a restlessness that changed them altogether. I cannot use the expression that he looked old. There is a ruin of youth, which is not like age, and into such a ruin Richard's youth and youthful beauty had all fallen away. He ate little, and seemed indifferent what it was, showed himself to be much more impatient than he used to be, and was quick even with Ada. I thought at first that his old light-hearted manner was all gone, but it shone out of him sometimes, as I had occasionally known little momentary glimpses of my own old face to look out upon me from the glass. His laugh had not quite left him either, but it was like the echo of a joyful sound, and that is always sorrowful. Yet he was as glad as ever, in his old affectionate way, to have me there, and we talked of the old times pleasantly. These did not appear to be interesting to Mr. Vole's, though he occasionally made a gasp, which I believe was his smile. He rose shortly after dinner, and said that with the permission of the ladies he would retire to his office. "'Always devoted business, Mr. Vole's,' cried Richard. "'Yes, Mr. C.,' he returned. "'The interest of clients are never to be neglected, sir. They are paramount in the thoughts of a professional man like myself, who wishes to preserve a good name among his fellow practitioners in society at large. My denying myself the pleasure of the present agreeable conversation may not be wholly irrespective of your own interests, Mr. C.' Richard expressed himself quite sure of that, and lighted Mr. Vole's out. On his return he told us, more than once, that Bowles was a good fellow, a safe fellow, a man who did what he pretended to do, a very good fellow indeed. He was so defiant about it that it struck me he had begun to doubt Mr. Bowles. Then he threw himself on the sofa, tired out, and Ada and I put things to rights, for they had no other servant than the woman who attended to the chambers. My dear girl had a cottage piano there, and quietly sat down to sing some of Richard's favourites, the lamp being first removed into the next room, as he complained of its hurting his eyes. I sat between them, at my dear girl's side, and felt very melancholy, listening to her sweet voice. I think Richard did, too. I think he darkened the room for that reason. She had been singing some time, rising between whiles to bend over him and speak to him, 
when Mr. Woodcourt came in. Then he sat down by Richard, and half playfully, half earnestly, quite naturally and easily, found out how he felt, and where he had been all day. Presently he proposed to accompany him in a short walk, on one of the bridges, as it was a moonlight airy night, and Richard, readily consenting, they went out together. They left my dear girl still sitting at the piano, and me still sitting beside her. When they were gone out, I drew my arm round her waist. She put her left hand in mine, I was sitting on that side, but kept her right upon the keys, going over and over them, without striking any note. "'Esther, my dearest,' she said, breaking silence, "'Richard is never so well, and I am never so easy about him as when he is with Alan Woodcourt. We have to thank you for that.' I pointed out to my darling how this could scarcely be, because Mr. Woodcourt had come to her cousin John's house, and had known us all there, and because he had always liked Richard, and Richard had always liked him, and, and so forth. "'All true,' said Ada. "'But that he is such a devoted friend to us, we owe to you.' I thought it best to let my dear girl have her way, and to say no more about it. So I said as much. I said it lightly, because I felt her trembling.' "'Esther, my dearest, I want to be a good wife, a very, very good wife indeed. You shall teach me.' "'I teach?' I said no more, for I noticed the hand that was fluttering over the keys, and I knew that it was not I who ought to speak, that it was she who had something to say to me. "'When I married Richard, I was not insensible to, to what was before him.' I had been perfectly happy for a long time with you, and I had never known any trouble or anxiety, so loved and cared for, but I understood the danger he was in, dear Esther. I know, I know, my darling. When we were married, I had some little hope that I might be able to convince him of his mistake, that he might come to regard it in a new way as my husband, and not pursue it all the more desperately for my sake as he does. But if I had not had that hope, I would have married him just the same, Esther, just the same. In the momentary firmness of the hand that was never still, a firmness inspired by the utterance of these last words, and dying away with them, I saw the confirmation of her earnest tones. "'You are not to think, my dearest Esther, that I fail to see what you see, and fear what you fear.' No one can understand him better than I do. The greatest wisdom that ever lived in the world could scarcely know Richard better than my love does. She spoke so modestly and softly, and her trembling hand expressed such agitation as it moved to and fro upon the silent notes. My dear, dear girl! I see him at his worst every day. I watch him in his sleep. I know every change of his face. But when I married Richard, I was quite determined, Esther, if heaven would help me, never to show him that I grieved for what he did, and so to make him more unhappy. I want him, when he comes home, to find no trouble in my face. I want him, when he looks at me, to see what he loved in me. I married him to do this, and this supports me. I felt her trembling more. I waited for what was yet to come, 
and I now thought I began to know what it was. And something else supports me, Esther. She stopped a minute, stopped speaking only. Her hand was still in motion. I look forward a little while, and I don't know what great aid may come to me. When Richard turns his eyes upon me then, there may be something lying on my breast, more eloquent than I have been, with greater power than mine, to show him his true course, and win him back. Her hand stopped now. She clasped me in her arms, and I clasped her in mine. If that little creature should fail too, Esther, I still look forward. I look forward a long while, through years and years, and think that then, when I am growing old, or when I am dead, perhaps, a beautiful woman, his daughter, happily married, may be proud of him and a blessing to him, or that a generous, brave man, as handsome as he used to be, as hopeful and far more happy, may walk in the sunshine with him, honouring his grey head, and saying to himself, I thank God this is my father, ruined by a fatal inheritance, and restored through me. Oh, my sweet girl, what a heart was that which beat so fast against me! These hopes uphold me, my dear Esther, and I know they will, though sometimes even they depart from me before a dread that arises when I look at Richard. I tried to cheer my darling, and ask her what it was. Sobbing and weeping, she replied, That he may not live to see his child. End of chapter 60「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. »« And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. »« Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.»